1968, George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. Dawn of the Dead. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. Not that room! Not that room! They must be destroyed on sight! Dawn of the Dead. This picture contains scenes of violence that may be considered shocking. No one under 17 will be admitted. Dawn of the Dead from United Film Distributing Company. Right. Here we are. All right. You all right? You all right? I'm all right, man. Last week we had... Special guest. What happened last week? Red Mike and Mighty Mike Vanderbilt stopped by. Mighty Mike Vanderbilt <laughs> came by again. That was a, that was a uh, welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Saturday Night Movie <laughs> Sleepovers. Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. And this is the Halloween. We're in the Halloween month, so this is like we're we're, we're like pigs and the October the extravagant. We always say extravaganza. October Madness. Well, that's our thing. Is October. Palooza? Month of horror, Halloween movie extravaganza. Yeah, it's a long one. I don't know. <laughs> a lot <laughs> a very of long title. I don't remember yeah. exactly what it a is. A lot of hyphens, so if you get tired, you can sit on them. Um, yeah, so my, so we're, we're, we're sitting down to record last week. Uh, well, it was, it was a week and a half ago now, and because uh, it was a Saturday night, and we get a knock on the door, bing bong, <laughs> a knock on the door with the bing bong, and it's Mighty Mike Vanderbilt outside. His mom again is in the uh, paneled station wagon. It's like... Uh, Mr. Rogers or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, because he had his uh, car to get on. Had, we, had we been recording, it would have been like, oh, yeah, oh you, yeah, look at this. <laughs> I get you now. Mr. McFeely, you know, that's it. Well, I guess, see, I used to know, I used to be happy to know, the. I guess, I haven't seen that documentary yet, but I used to always tell people like, you know, do you know where he got the McFeely name is because his name is Fred McFeely Rogers, but I feel like now people are going to know that. Because uh, that's not a secret anymore. Yeah, because they have a documentary on him now. I, I used to feel good because I knew a little about him because I'm I, I love that. I, I realized early in life that I guess when I grew up I wanted to become Mr. Rogers, but I digress. So anyway, yeah. So it's like <laughs> we're here. It's like we hear the knock on the door, and it's like you know he comes over. I wonder and he sits who that down. could be, kids. <laughs> yeah, it's like one of the old Pee-wee's Bob Hope Christmas. Oh yeah, I was going to say like the Bob Hope Christmas special. Like who's at the door? And it's like Sinatra <laughs> singing Christmas carols and stuff. So Mike Vanderbilt came over. Yeah, and we and we sat him down and and. Uh, and that was a very fun Halloween episode. I thought so. Yeah. I don't remember it very well. I know. It's been I know. a long week. I, it, has been, it has been a very long week, yeah. Uh, and I think I drank a lot that cast as well because I was so excited that he was there. But that was fun having him come, come back for a surprise. You know, he did the Blues Brothers with us in, um, in the summertime. And uh, it was swung back around. Yeah, I got to say it was awfully nice of his, of his mom to come back <laughs> around, drive him back with him facing the, uh, the opposite seat. You know, he's facing out the back. I remember when I was a kid, 
you know, you'd be like, can I go over to Jimmy's house? Well, where, where does he live? Yeah, how far away does he live? He lives in Schenectady. What? <laughs> exactly. Where, well, how do you know this kid? <laughs> the internet? I'm not driving all the way. That's 40 minutes away. And there's no such thing as the internet. How do you know the kid? Yeah, that's, that was always too far. I always ask him, your parents, just now that we're adults, like I remember I used to, if I got up in the morning for school, and I had to take the bus. I had to be up at 6.30 a.m. to, like, leave by 7. But if my dad drove me, I could sleep that extra half hour. And then he'd drive me at 7.30. I think the bell would ring at 7.45. So it's so funny to think that, like, at 6.30, I'm waking up, walking into his room and waking his ass up. And he'd, you know, done second shift up to, like, midnight or 1 and 2 in the morning. I'm like, Dad, you think you can take me to school? And he'd have the time. I'd say 80% of the time said yes. You know, and or sometimes I'm like, no, you know, he's like, I'm too tired, please. And I'm like, oh, come on, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just to think that like, you know, and then I'm for only what, 20 minutes am I getting at that point? Because by the time I walk back, sit back into bed, it's like 637, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, long hallway. Yeah, you remember that hallway, remember? <laughs> we shot a movie in that hallway. We, we shot a snuff film in that hallway. <laughs> was a, that was a good one. Yeah, that was that was as a far good as one. Snuff films going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, speaking of snuff films, that's kind of a segue. <laughs> Murdering people. <laughs> there are some murder in this movie. Yeah. So this is also an anniversary. It is right. Um, Which is kind of crazy. This is probably not our, for us. No, but. not for us. <laughs> but this is probably the biggest anniversary we may ever have. <laughs> you know, the show because this is the 2018 is the 200th. Anniversary of the original printing of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Yes, uh, the other title that sometimes gets forgotten. So uh, that was our idea. Like, hey, you know what? We like anniversaries and we like literature and uh, we like old things. Yeah, we were trying to figure out what to do. This, you know, it's getting harder, isn't it? It's getting harder because we've done so many great movies and. I don't though honestly like at some point I wouldn't mind revisiting some of the I know, movies I know. we've done. But Blake's dying to revisit the thing because <laughs> we, we 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 blew our old wad so to speak early on doing the movies we loved and then you know I just feel like it would be a very different show. We were if sprinting we back now. then, you know. Now with the long haul, now we jog. So yeah, yeah I think I, I I agree with you. I think we should have a there might think, be a couple. But I think we're revisit. a while's away before we start thinking about actually doing that. So there's. <laughs> You know, it's getting tougher to pick movies because we've picked all, we've done so many movies that we love so much. Yeah. Though, obviously, there's plenty more movies. It's just coming up with stuff. And then when you, for Halloween, it's like we usually try to have a, like a diverse, we usually have like a bit of a formula for Halloween. Yeah. Which we've kind of thrown out the window a little bit this year. Yeah. And I think we've, we've made it obvious for the people who listen regularly, especially our previous Octobers. Yeah. I mean, like typically if we were going to do a Halloween themed movie, like we did last week, Halloween, that would have been the last episode of the month. Yeah. But kind of because the new movies because coming it's closest at, to the holiday. Yeah, we just did, like that's our Halloween episode closest yeah. to the the actual holiday. And it's Halloween centric. We did we've done Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. We've done uh, Season of the Witch two, Halloween two, and Halloween three. Yeah, we went backwards. Yeah, this year we did it first because mostly because of, like the, movie, the new movie yeah. and the anniversary. Yeah, people you will know. be sick of it by the time the end of the month. <laughs> so we figured we'll try to get it in early. Yeah, people will be uh, still excited about Halloween. The, the movie coming out and the, yeah, it was the 40th anniversary. And it was yeah, too. Deal. Yeah, yeah. I forgot that was another anniversary we celebrated. And then we, anniversaries. And then we try to do something. We usually try to pick something older. Yeah. You know, like, you know, black and white or like, you know, 50s or older. Like a classic, quote unquote, or something. 
And in the past, it's been Mad Love. Mad Love. Uh, them. Them. The Hammer. Mummy movie. Yeah. From, was it 59 or 60? I think 59, yeah. And then, uh, you know, we usually try to do something maybe kind of fun. Or yeah. Funny. Uh, but this year, you know, we just Throwing we figured it was the, the 40th window. anniversary of Halloween. We should do that. Yeah. Uh, because we never actually did the first one. Right out of the gate. Kicking the door, waving the 4-4. We're just like, come on! And then we were like, let's do something like more contemporary, because earlier this summer we did Taken. Yeah, we did from 2000. Yeah, that was our 2008 or 9. Yeah, That's so we were delayed, trying to yeah. think of something from like the 2000s, and I was like, you know what is might be interesting is... You want to see something really scary? <laughs> I was like, I don't, I was like, I don't know if you're into this, Dion, but it's like the 200th year anniversary of Frankenstein. And I go, what's Frankenstein, Blake? <laughs> and he goes, well, and uh, yeah, and, and then so I, then we're like, well, should we do the original one? Yeah, the, you know, the, the Universal movie with uh, <laughs> should we James do the original Whale? one, the Edison movie? <laughs> should we do the original 1910 Edison movie, uh, or should imagine that one? <laughs> and it's a long cast. We're dissecting every frame, or do we do? Because it's only like twenty minutes longer. Exactly. <laughs> we do a three and a half hour podcast on it, or should we do? Um, you know, maybe a Hammer. You know, yeah, I'm a big good. fan of Curse of Frankenstein, the Hammer, the, yeah. the original Hammer movie. A couple, though. A couple. I used to. I think I've said this before, but I used to sh- slag off the Hammers because ah, oh, they look like shock. But then, yeah, yeah, you go back and check them out. You know, chronologically, they're amazing. There's a lot to talk about with their. With the first one, because that was like their first yeah, and it was, entree. It was and color, and it was, and it was like, the first Frankenstein in color. And it, and was, it was the first Frankenstein since like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Since yeah. like the goofy, yeah, you know, the more comedic yeah. versions of the, the Universal Monster movie. Yeah, I mean, and then, hell, we... And of we, course, Bride of Frankenstein is classic. often considered like the best of the universe. Some people consider it the best of the Universal Monster movies. Yeah. You and I have an affinity for House of... Son of Frankenstein. Son of Frankenstein. The third one, which is the third one, and the last one, I think, Karloff plays the monster in. Mm-hmm. And then and it has Bela Lugosi and Karloff. And Bela Lugosi's playing... Uh, we'll bring this up e- later. He's playing Igor in that movie because in the first Frankenstein... The uh, original 1931, it, his Dwight Fry, the actor's playing Fritz. He's the uh, you know the, the, mm-hmm. the malformed hunchback assistant, but everyone thinks like Igor, bring me. You know that's always been you know the Americana jo- serialized where you know Igor don't show up till three. Remember he's got the broken neck. They yeah, killed yeah. me, <laughs> but I don't die. It's so good. We had the Corman Frankenstein Unbound, I think it's yeah. called, and in I the can, early nineties. And I can even see us doing. Um, Hell, Abin Costello, me Frankenstein. We oh, love yeah. Abin Costello. You know, I was thinking, you know, on my way over today before we watched uh, the on your movie bike tonight. <laughs> you probably, while I was, I had my huffy, and we was waiting at the stoplight. <laughs> I was thinking something that we didn't think about because we were trying to think of something more contemporary because uh, that's what we wanted to do. But I yeah. was like, because a movie that we've been talking about doing for a couple of years at this time of year was Young Frankenstein. Yeah, that's yeah, that's another uh, shining example of if we did like a parody. Yeah, you know that would have been great to do and hit Mel Brooks at the same time over the head. You know? But somehow we settled on this one. Well, because I I personally have like a lot of nostalgia, and this play, this movie has a kind of a special place in my heart, even though I can. I know it's flawed. Yeah, <laughs> I can see people's. I think people may we 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 may argue that people may not 
out of all the movies we just listed, even like some of the TV movies we haven't listed, you know, I'm Frankenstein, <laughs> the true story. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. Seventy or that I always bring up the, the the what is it, the Randy Quaid TNT mid '90s Frankenstein, or there's the one from the late '70s with uh, Jane Seymour. You know that 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 uh, Frankenstein, or even the, that might be the true story. Is it that or, one? Or there's the other one with Bo Sevenson from my favorite movie, um, freaking um, Oh Spencer. Snow Snow Beast. Yeah, yeah. He plays Frankenstein in like a l- early seventies. A great TV. Would you turn me on? Yeah, me? rendition of TV version of that. Uh, and I also and, and I actually found it. I actually found one on YouTube when I was researching before I came over, and there was. Uh, like a mid '80s TV movie where Carrie Fisher plays Elizabeth and David Warner plays the monster. Wow! And his, what, what's he look like? Is he like kind of traditional looking, or do they make a, a unique kind of a? No, I mean it doesn't look. You know, they can't do the Karloff. Thing. Yeah, he don't um, have bolts coming out of his head. You know, not too unlike this. Today we're doing Mary Shelley's Frankenstein <laughs> from 1994. Yeah, and it. Uh, we could have also done. I, I was only recently saw the uh, the Munsters TV movie they did, where it's the color movie, and they go to like England. And I was actually, it, you know, it's like from those years of the '60s escapism. We have like Batman '66, the movie, and the Munsters. So yeah, yeah, you know that that's even another in, insane installment that don't put us pa- past us. Us <laughs> doing, uh, and of course, very early on in the sh- in the life of the podcast, we did Monster Squad. Yeah, and that has a Fra- Frankenstein. We talked a bit about. Uh, the monsters, you know, through the gen- decades going up into the 80s and, you know, how they became popular culture. I think this movie for... I as well have a huge affinity for this movie. And at the time... And I also just recently, I think I was telling you off, Mike, that I revisited the Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I've always had an affinity for. And I uh, appreciated it a, lo- a whole lot more this past viewing than I have prior, but I still saying that I've always loved that movie. Yeah, yeah. We used to... we both like that movie a lot when we that was one of the movies when we met yeah we were in because we were big gary oldman fans. yeah and this was we were big robert de niro fans i mean this probably got us to see this and then as well uh i guess i would say i was into that gothic revival in the 90s of the horror movies because then you round that off with the contemporary version of wolf with the nicholson which i really like Mm -hmm. and then you have i don't think i've seen that since the movie oh it's good it's i mean it's i remember liking it when i saw it i have have no idea how i feel about it now they do some tricks in it which are pretty fun you know like to to remember the stuff i'm jumping and running and Mm -hmm. all and then Nicholson as a as a wolf is pretty cool, and then Memoirs of an Invisible Man in the early '90s, John Carpenter, and you can even probably put in there in the late '90s you had that Invisible Man with um uh what's his face uh, uh Kevin Bacon Kevin Bacon Hollow yeah. Man Hollow Man, and then somewhere around then was the Mummy too yeah 1998 yeah yeah <laughs> and I didn't I didn't care for those we talked about this I think in the Mummy the Hammer cast we did a couple of years ago but I don't like I mean they turned it into like a serial action movie where i yeah, like yeah. my mummy a little more serious. i actually like the first one but i yeah. know i i totally get your you know your it, point it, about it, it gets too and then it's hard now on the eyes when you go back to watch them because some of the cgi is still kind of it's like wow who knew that you know but uh so we decided on this movie because we both have yeah we have a mutual affinity for it uh yeah you know it's funny this movie you know this movie i could only imagine that this movie gets made because my recollection was that Bram Stoker's Dracula by Francis Ford Coppola did fairly well, or at least hype-wise. Yeah, and, and was well anticipated. I don't know how it did at the box office, but I imagine that it's only because that gets made that this movie gets made. And then, lo and behold, like Zoetrope and Coppola 
you know, were were produced this. Yeah, movie. something was going on at the time where uh, I think they were mid production of Dracula, and the writer, the screenwriter of Dracula, stumbled upon the original screenplay of this movie. Um, and he was, and I guess because of the hype around American Zoetrope, which is Francis Ford Coppola's company, doing, uh, and Francis Ford Coppola was still, you know, it's Francis Ford Coppola. He just could probably come off of a Godfather three at the time, which has got nominated for a bunch of stuff. Yeah, or Jack. When was that? Yeah, I think that might have. <laughs> that might have been after. Yeah, this? might have been. A, 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 or, but that still was, I think, critically acclaimed, even though it didn't yeah. do so well. Uh, so uh, the screenwriter for Dracula found this gave it to, to coppola and at the time coppola's envision was originally maybe even directing this yeah and uh you know coppola even before thinking of dracula had always toyed with the idea of maybe i would do a frankenstein that was kind of his original idea so i think that's how this got kind of hyped so since zoetrope got interested they brought in uh, tristar and tristar was immediately like yeah we'll back it and then so that's where they brought frank Darramont in uh and who, of now the Walking Dead fame, and he did what else has he done? He did Shawshank, the Mist, Shawshank, Green Mile, Green Mile uh, to to work on the script. He's been on the show before because I think he wrote. He was one of the writers on the Blob remake. Oh yeah, that could be, and maybe even eighty eight, maybe even Nightmare on Elm Street three, the Dream, Dream Warriors. Warriors. Yeah. His partner directed it. I can't remember if Frank Darabont co-wrote that. I know Craven did like an, like maybe the first draft of that yeah i can't remember if it got rewritten by darabont but his partner directed it so there's a chance he had something to do with it but he definitely like wrote was one of the writers of the remake of the blob which we did on the show a few years ago yeah and then i think when it all got going maybe you know uh for whatever reason coppola was in post-production of dracula and was probably you know he's like i don't know if i want my you know next project after coming off of dracula to go do frankenstein because i don't know how dracula's gonna do so that's when they ended up outsourcing it and they came up with kenneth branagh uh now I, you know back in the day before the internet you know back when we were just you know teens or even tweens the uh there was never, you know, like the, you. I feel like at least I wasn't. I wasn't as aware of like what the critical response to things were. Oh, I didn't know at all. I mean, I knew when something was a hit. But sure, if there, yeah, you, know, you would know if something was a hit, you know, box office wise, I guess, or just because of word of mouth, you know, that a lot of people were seeing it, and then you know, by then you had like Entertainment Tonight, and they were reporting on like box office totals, and maybe. <coughs> And maybe if you had a commercial while the movie was still in theaters, they would put like, you know, Chris, two says, thumbs up, yeah, you know, it's, it's blowing your mind. Yeah. But for the most part. So, like, I don't know. I guess I went a lot of years not knowing that this movie is not is, is like universally panned. By, well, for the most part, it's funny because it's like I, when we did Taken, I was like, oh, turns there's, out there's some people that don't like Taken. <laughs> Who would have known? And that's even during the age of the Internet. Yeah. So go back, you know, 20 years or whatever. It's surprise. I remember this not doing. I remember it coming and going. Yeah, you know, and then people being mixed about it. And I, it's funny because I had only just brought up when we did the Shadow a couple weeks ago for our anniversary. I remember that Miami Blues, that Alec Baldwin movie coming out. And I remember people panning. I remember watching like shows. People like it's terrible. And you know, so that was the only. I have a very distinct reaction. And I said I've never seen that movie. Um, I remember that being like the first movie I realized, well, oh, movies could be bad, I guess. You know? <laughs> <laughs> who knew? You know? Some people don't like it. Yeah, who cares? You know? um, so 
I remember this movie coming and going pretty quickly. And kind of the same thing with Dracula. When Dra- I was really excited when Dracula came out. I don't remember if I remember it coming, uh, you know, uh, prior to it. But then I remember it being in theaters, me wanting to see it, me sk- seeing it, being me being really into it. Same thing with this. I remember. I remember this was coming. This was around the same time I was at the age where, uh, uh, again, prior to the internet, internet, people like our age and older, will, or maybe even a little younger, might remember like if your parents were going to like a, a mall, a plaza, or something, uh, and they let you go do your own thing. I would go to the Barnes and Noble. Yeah. So my mom would be maybe I don't know shopping in the in the strip mall whatever. I go into the Barnes and Noble and I would either go when I was really little I go to the humor section for like my Garfield books or Far Side or whatever. And then usually right near that is the music or the film. And so I would then start looking at music, film, TV. So that was always my I'd always stop there. I don't know once every month, once every two weeks, and and look around, maybe pick something up, sit there, read it. Tell my mom's like, come, come, let's go, let's go. You know, because I yeah, never had a leash. Yeah, so uh, I had a leash when I was a little. Very funny. That's a, that's a story for another day. Um, so I remember like you know being up to date and looking around. I remember this movie, seeing the book for it, getting super excited, and then like I think the same day making the purchase of the book. And then leaving that aisle, going to the fiction aisle or horror, finding the Mary Shelley book yeah. and buying it back then. So I bought them at the same time. And then I tried to read the Mary Shelley book back then. Uh, you know, pretty dense. Circa 93. And I, I can't read, which is evident on the show. <laughs> uh, or pronounce or words. Or pronounce words. Or especially whatever, you know, names. And we've got books. I got a book coming out. You have a book done. Um, so I only didn't, I didn't end up reading that. And then that became the allure because then in like 2009 or 10 or 11, I read seasonally. So for Halloween, I was looking for something to read. And I had just read uh, the original Bram Stoker's Dracula the year before. I was like, I have this 20-year-old copy of the Frankenstein I bought. I'm gonna, and I read that version of it, yeah. you know, really elementary version, you know, just with Karloff's picture on the cover, you know, of the original uh, 31 mummy, uh, uh, monster. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, how did you come to this movie? Well, I remember seeing Bram Stoker's Dracula at the yeah. theater. Um. That's like 92, 93. That's like, yeah, that's Maybe. like 92. I think it comes out in 92. And then, and then I saw Wolf at the theater, which was after this. Yeah, 95 maybe? I maybe? don't think I saw this at the movies, but I think we rented it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my collecting of media started pretty early. Whether it be, I would never do this now. But as a kid, you would sometimes maybe tape a movie onto an audio, onto a regular VHS. Oh, <laughs> yeah, make yourself a, a yeah, yeah. Of course, who would do that now? <laughs> yes, uh, that's poppy. I, I can't remember if I had if I had taped this or if I actually bought this at some point. But this became one of those movies that you know, whenever if you have time, you got time to kill. You want to watch a movie, yeah. And throw this on. And as soon as you're like, I can't decide what I want to watch. Like, I'll just throw, you you just pick a movie that you'll watch any time. But, you know, we talked about that with Star Trek six. Yeah. I had that taped off of like, you know, television with commercials. Awesome. (laughs) And I would just throw, I watched that a lot. I would throw that in a lot. Uh, You know, there was a long period of time where I watched one of the Star Wars movies. Like once a week in the morning, right? Would you like before school? You were getting up watching <laughs> any any time of day. Rockies, 
But this was, for some reason, this was a movie. I say that because I've known Blake for so long that, that this has come up in conversation, so I'm sorry. I'm not just There was uh, the Rocky movies, obviously, but then this was one of those movies that I had on tape, I had on VHS, and would often just put in and watch. It was, you know, it's like, the per- it's like a good escape. I don't know. For some reason, this movie was, like, totally watchable. Now, to me. see, for me, uh, I'd say about fourth grade or fifth grade my parents made the big decision of giving me a tv for my room and you know that thing first was only with bunny ears then we did like a jiminy rig where like well you know uh, a, a coaxial cable was coming out a window sagging going into the other window and i'd hook it up and that's how you know they made like a split and i had yeah. i had like rudimentary cable so about eighth grade maybe um i I was getting like C's and my parents were like, if you apply yourself and you do good on these midterms, we're going to get you a present. So I did and I got like good grades the next semester or whatever it was. And they got me one of those revolutionary new like TV VCR combos, yeah, yeah. you know, which I still have. That was the movie the, when we lived together uh, in Yonkers. That was the one in my bedroom. I, and I still have it because it's the only tube TV I still own, you know, but it was one of these things where it's connected because that was like huge in the early 90s. Like the, the TV and the VCR come together. <laughs> what? Holy crap. So <laughs> this is the future. Yeah, this, is like, this, is, this is tomorrow land. So I'll be getting that in like brand new, uh, like I think it was like a Magnavox and like, I don't know what that, that is, 91 or 92. That kind of like flipped the script for me where now I could just watch what I want in my room. And Frankenstein, when this came out, I too actually somehow stumbled across a copy for myself. Yeah. And I don't know how I got it, but I, I got a copy of <laughs> that was, too. This is one of those movies that just, <laughs> just shows yeah, up. Yeah, just in the morning. You just, what the... And this was, so this was around the time that Blake and I used to draw when we were left growing up. Left under your pillow. Wow, by the tooth fairy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. He said, I give a tooth away. I get a, I get a copy of a, of a movie. And so I used to try to draw myself covers like i drew myself the goodfellas cover or whatever mm-hmm. and my dad was like oh, okay you i know? think i have one of those too where i drew that somewhere yeah like you know so there's a couple movies that i would draw the uh you know try to draw a cover to or the the you know when you put the label on you'd make your own label write it on so this was a movie where i remember where i tried to draw the font mary shelley's frankenstein on the side of the yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the copy tape and you know when you have it in the, so this was a movie also where i i think it was on sp you know, and, uh, you know, so that means that, like, you know, it's a pristine, I wanted a pristine copy. <laughs> yeah, of this. you wanted a crisp. I remember. <laughs> to, to, as crisp as possible. Yeah, I want to have enough. Really, I'm not, asking, I'm not putting, like, you know, SLP or EP, which will get three <laughs> movies on there. I also remember when this came out, they, I don't know if they were just trying to, uh, if it was in tandem to, to help publicize it or they just did it on its own. I think TNT, it was, did a, uh, bio, like, a documentary on the Frankenstein monster and then in cinema. And then it was narrated by Eli Wallach. And I remember taping that right off the TV, yeah. being really into that. I knew who Eli Wallach was, so that was exciting. And, you know, Eli Wallach was elderly at that point. Sure. Um, and I remember watching that with my dad to the, to the point then when, uh, I mean, getting really into the weeds. My sister was hop- hospitalized around that time. So we, after the hospital that day, my dad brought me right to Barnes & Noble. was like, pick out whatever you want. And I picked out this Frankenstein book. Yeah. So then Dion has like, a, it's like magazine oh yeah, I brought it, sized. Yeah. You know, but thicker than a magazine, you know, back in the day. But it's like a picture. It's got beautiful full color photos. Yeah. It's, a, it's one of these like soft cover bound. Mary, it's called Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It came out in tandem with the movie. And it's written uh, about 80% of it is written by Kenneth Branagh. He must have went like all in on yeah. it because 
There's this fan. So you getting his, uh, you know, yeah, his account, about, yeah, of, of like what, making you know, the movie and what his thoughts are. And I don't know when it came out, but I would imagine it was probably for something like Turner Classic Movies. And you can find. Oh, it. I think it was the same time. Yeah, yeah okay. I know could, where you're going. You with can this. find yeah. it on some of the re-release of the Universal Monster movies. But there was this. There's this amazing, amazing, document. amazing. This amazing is amazing documentary. Saturday Night Movie <laughs> Sleepovers News Alert. <laughs> <laughs> this is a news alert. This is. It's an amazing documentary that we love on um, Lon Chaney. Well, there's that. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were doing that one. There is that one. That's amazing. I'm over too. the moon on that one. That's great. And that did come out on DVD with a couple of Lon Chaney movies. Yeah, it's an extra on like, uh, one of the Lon Chaney box sets. But there's this great one just about the Universal Monster movies. Okay. And Kenneth Branagh narrates it. Yeah. And I think it came out a couple years ago. They put out like the special DVDs, where it's like Frankenstein and... Uh, Dracula had like these special and and like the covers look like books, both sepia tone yeah. images, Blu-rays and all that kind of. And you know, of course, the Dracula one came with the Spanish version and the regular version. But the Frankenstein movie came out with as a special feature of this documentary about the Universal Monster movies, and it is really great. And I totally recommend it if you can find it. It's narrated by Kenneth Branagh, but I, that might have come out. It might have been around this time it seems like he went full in he's like i am the universal monster guy yeah like you know i think he maybe in in trying to promote it he was doing like stuff with other people like uh, i don't i don't remember i have it on tape still that you like well like documentary that i i'd I'd love to find and rewatch. so i don't know if it um if on there if they like and now coming you know to the big screen is a new movie you know like at the end yeah uh this is around the same time i keep bringing up that turner the tnt movie Frankenstein, so maybe they realized that like, was around the that was around the same time. You know, there's sh- just stuff coming out because it seemed like there was a mini revival of at least the essential. Aside from, I guess, Creature from the Black Lagoon, there was a revival of all the monster movie classic guys we just said. You know, so maybe well, they were like also looking, around the same time. Files is starting. You know, like so we're starting to get into those kind of creepy sh- tales from the crypt is going well on HBO. Yeah, but this is also around the same time, and we've talked about this time period. Early in 90s. previous <clears throat> episodes where we were getting like a Michael Caine TV Sunday night TV movie of a mini series of Jack the Ripper. But then also there's one of Jekyll and Hyde with Michael Caine. Yeah. Uh, so there was like this resurgence and documentaries. Remember, there's that one that we love um, of like, you know, who is um, Jack the Ripper? Yeah. You know what I mean? With that narrated by that, that uh, heavier Scott uh, English guy, you know, so there was like a lot of like, you know, it seems at this time period. There was a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, and it's weird because I feel like the 90s is often thought about as being like a really bad decade for horror on yeah. the whole because it's coming out of the 70s and, and then, 80s. And then Scream, were, kind which of. were such really great decades for yeah. horror. Uh, but there was, a lot of, there was a lot of horror in the 90s. Remember there was the re, they redid the Munsters TV show? There was a new Munsters television show. I don't know if that show. was eight, late 80s, early 90s, but I remember the guy that's in it. Like they, That ran at least a season. Yeah. you know, And that was a... Uh, you know, a, a traditional copy of comedy of the Munsters. So it's like there was a lot going on. There was, especially for television. There seemed to be in the 80s and then especially and then like carry over to the 90s. We had resurgence of like Outer Limits. Yeah, that's true. We had Tales from the Crypt and Tales from the Dark Side was still on. Friday the 13th, the series was on. Friday the 13th, the series that started in the late 80s. Unfortunately, Werewolf didn't make it that long. Yeah, I know. The late 80s and the 90s. Yeah. But a lot of TV... And so, like, horror was really accessible. And then, like I said, you had these TV movies because then you had the ones I just mentioned, but then you also had, like, 
There was a vampire one that later became a show. Mike Vanderbilt would know this one. There was, but there was like a vampire. He's like a detective. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Well, I think that rings Rick, a bell. I think Rick Springfield played him in like the pilot. Yeah, movie. we talked about this, and then it's somebody else in the movie. In the show, and then somebody, and then it's somebody and then else. Takes when's over Interview the with a Vampire? That's like ninety four. That's right? around this time. Yeah, yeah. that's a research. Anne Rice, and um, at this time too, you have you know you're coming off the heels of the eighties. You know, there's there's a couple shows that were uh, you know horror shows in the eighties too. That so it's like there there seems to be and like you just brought up the TV movies. TV movies were still big, and I remember particularly TNT USA, they would do, you know, every six months a year, you get a horror movie out of them. There was a great, um, you know, like car movie we brought up when we did Christine a couple years ago with, um, what's her face? Uh, the girl from Blade Runner and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, Joanna yeah. Cassidy, she leads <clears throat> in. So like, you know, there's a Faye Dunaway uh, USA movie that I love, which I haven't seen since it came out. And it's kind of like a ripoff of, I think like, rear window and it ends in a cabin you know where it's like so they make these thriller or they make straight up horror movies that are kind of like kind of parodying uh what's out in the cinema but at the same time like when we talked mr. about boogity mr boogity's mid 80s like a solid oh, 85 yeah. or so but i mean you get these movies that are like you know we've talked about the tv horror in, in nauseam the tv horror movie genre yeah you know and they, into some really formative great especially in the 70s into the 80s tv movies we did one last year what is it or was that two years ago um night of the scarecrow night of the scarecrow that might have been two years ago because we did i think we did uh hocus pocus last halloween oh yeah that's as true. the halloween second movie but my, our point is that it's just it was around and but that's uh, very ironic or, or what you're saying is that you're right after the the, the slasher film kind of kills the genre you know jason and freddie battling it out and then you get like dr giggles you have all these really you know, Phantasm 3 or 4, you know. Yeah, and there's plenty of 90s horror movies, especially because of the video store. Yeah. You know, we were Well, there was a whole subgenre of, like, know, straight to video. Like Leprechaun. Yeah. And, uh, which, was, which went to theaters. I mean, there was a lot of, yeah, young, still a lot of movies. Uh, young Blood, John Landis, that's a Dracula movie, and that's, or, I'm sorry, Vampire movie. That's, like, 91, <laughs> yeah, 92. Draculas. You know, got the Draculas coming. <laughs> Let's not forget uh, Vampire in Brooklyn, too, Eddie Murphy. That's uh, this time, too. That's a very funny movie, which I don't even think's on DVD. I mean, nineties. We must have been. That's when Freddy died. Yeah, and when Jason went to hell. Uh, you have <laughs> re- you have return. You have a, a third installment of the Return to Living Dead films, and you have I think. Um, uh, you know, you have the Candyman's also, but you had another one that I was just thinking there. Oh crap, I forgot. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, good. Well, horror right around movies. the time of this movie, maybe a year before or the same year of this movie, you get in the mouth of madness. Yeah, and Wes Craven's New Nightmare. So there was, I mean, there was some decent horror, and there certainly was a push. Oh, Especially Tales from the Hood, too, is, I think around this time as well. Oh, yeah, well, you had all those. You yeah. Had the Bordello of Blood, yeah. and Demon Knight. I mean, all those. Like B movies, solid B yeah, movies. Yeah, but those, like, Tales from the Crypt. Anthology kind of. Movies, you know, like Demon Knight and Tales Bordello from the Dark Blood Side, the movie. Bo- were both really fun. And Tales from the Dark Side movies, like, yeah, like 89 or 90, maybe yeah. 90, I think, ish. Yeah. <laughs> so don't. Don't hold me to yeah, it. Yeah, don't quote us on that. But right around that time. So yeah, so it's funny that like you said that a lot of people don't think that the genres revitalize or get some vigor until Scream kind of drops. Yeah. But it's funny that you do have you're still it going didn't strong. go away. Maybe yeah. it wasn't as res- maybe on the whole it wasn't as respected as the seventies, which is maybe if you know it, if it's not the best decade for horror movies, the seventies or the eighties, they're certainly two of the best. Yeah, you know you would put them. 
in the in the top five of decades. I bet you just film. the gratuitousness of the violence and gore probably just played it out by the late eighties. I mean, that time when you get like David well, things Dead started to stuff. parody themselves. You know, yeah. Freddie and Jason. Like, those movies, those, you get you get like the big, uh, the big franchises start to become just like a parody of yeah. themselves. For, uh, like we did last week, Halloween's still going with like what Halloween four and five. Well, Halloween four comes out in eighty eight. Yeah. Uh, ten years after the original, and then I think the following year you get Halloween five, and like then, right like the next Halloween you get Halloween yeah. five, and then Halloween six that comes out maybe ninety two, and that's with Donald Pleasance. That's like that's right the last one. Yeah, Donald Pleasance, and I remember that being a big deal. You know, like they had him. I remember my angle, <laughs> and I think to my recollection at the time he passed away before the movie came out. Like it came out posthumously. Uh, I might be wrong. Don't quote yeah, me yeah. on that either. But I remember that being the thing like, oh, he died, but they're still using his voice. He sounds ill in the movie. But I remember Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah, you yeah. Know, like it being a big deal. Yeah. And I think that was an effort. I don't know if it was a conscious effort, but I think in a lot of people's minds, it seemed to be this effort to legitimize horror. Again, maybe yeah. in a way that it hadn't been since maybe like The Exorcist and Jaws. And yeah, stuff. and it also takes a, that movie, particularly um, they take attack where they do the entire movie as an homage to the older, like say Universal in particular film. So the entire thing is shot front to back on on sets. Yeah, and that's kind of like what they do here for creative control. They they end up for the most part s- shooting this entire movie on backlots and sets because they want to be able to have the control they need to be able to do stuff. Well, yeah, maybe the interiors, but the, what this movie has that Bram Stoker's movie doesn't have, or Coppola's version of Dracula doesn't have to me is, and we talk about this, a, I mean, this comes up a lot for me. And we just did a movie recently where I kind of, maybe it was The Shadow, because shadows all kind of backlots and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Seem very claustrophobic to me. Yeah, you know, it seems very like tight. This movie seems much. Well, bigger. you get the you get the they go they did a week in the Alps. Yeah, like so you, you have get that, these beautiful yeah. mountain vistas and the Frankenstein house. Yeah, certainly doesn't look like it's on a backlot. It is. But, but it, it doesn't yeah. look like oh, it. Oh, no, maybe it's, you know what? Maybe it's not. You're right. Maybe they, they the mocked exterior. up the front of the house, but it's in Switzerland. Yeah, the inside is clearly. Yeah. Um, but, but everything, but even the, the, they shot this at Shepperton Studios, and it was right after they had, Shepperton had done Batman. And they say up until this point, uh, we talk about in the Batman cast how big Gotham City the backlots were. This yeah. was bigger than it, and this at the time was the biggest set they'd ever built in England at the time, so they used the entire back lot of Shepperton front to back. So I think even though, because to, to make the walled um, Augenstadt or wherever they go in Germany, you know, the, the, yeah, the, yeah. the, 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 the syphilis-ridden town, not syphilis. Yeah, where he goes to college, yeah. to university. So even, you know, that, even though it is a set and they're on back lots, you see the sky. Where, yeah. like, the, you know, the shadows feels, in the dark. It feels you know, like it breathes more. You know, and this is an interesting point. I mean, I guess we should talk about the book a little bit, but the, that... Starting off the whole angle around this with Brana's idea, or maybe everybody's idea, not just his, but they want to try to look at every version, read the book, every version that's come out, film version, and try to keep everything from the original book that hasn't been in the other versions, and then try to get away from the stuff that's been contrived in other versions yeah. to try to have this. Because they say even though this stu- some of this stuff is, uh, they they go other ways to try to correct some problems, they say this is supposedly kind of like the most faithful 
to a certain extent of the original novel to that time. Yeah, I mean, up till that point, yeah. for sure. And, you know, it's always hairy because they, you know, they... Bram Stoker's Dracula, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yeah. It's implying in the title to call it Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. That it's his, that there, you know. And Coppola says because oh, it was drove. Well, I know what other Zoe movie I think might have been around that time is Mary Riley. Mary Riley was, uh, yeah, and that's also, that's Dr. Yeah. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That was Jekyll, Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll, Dr. Hyde with John Malkovich and, uh, John Malkovich and Julia, Julia Roberts. Roberts. That was yeah. good. I saw that in the theater. Um, I just remember, I think the only time I ever watched that, watched that. <laughs> it was with Garrett? It was with Garrett. <laughs> I remember you guys watching it that night. I, and I remember like walking in like, I haven't seen this in the theater and leaving. Yeah, sophomore year, Dan uh, moved into an apartment with some people. And uh, one of them was this guy named Garrett, who was also in the film program. But he was A senior, two right? years ahead of us. Yeah, we were, we, were, we were sophomores at that point. And he just loved julia roberts and he had a laser disc player and he had just bought a laser disc player that would like obviously not flip the disc and this was on the but decline you would, of the laser but you wouldn't have to well that's probably why i got it oh it yeah like, because dvds cheap. were coming out yeah oh they were just on the about they were like they existed but nobody had a player yet yeah uh and he had a, the laser disc of Mary Riley. And yeah, I remember sitting in his tiny little room, which was the room you moved into. Yeah, because I, when I moved left. into the apartment, I moved into the double, and it had two singles. So then those two people graduated, and the kid I shared the double double with, Michael Bram, who we talk about, who's the drummer from Jason Mraz, yeah, jazz drummer. Me and him then graduated from the double to the two singles. I took Garrett's single, and then Mike Morona who we had on the cast, Pete and Pete, our, our actor friend from film school who was... Uh, moved into the double. He moved into the double with our friend Lars, and he was... He, we did the Enter the Dragon podcast with him earlier in February, and then that was the year he ended up going on Letterman. Or no, he went on Jay Leno because he was doing the, uh, the Ameritrade commercials, and he took a Polaroid of Lars in bed that night sleeping. It's, this is a longer story I can't get into, and he had all of our names written on his hand mm-hmm. when he went on Lendo. They took a close-up of Dion Leroy. Jamie Lee Curtis's lap at the end of the show because she was she was the first guest. She was in that Robert Rodriguez, not Robert Rodriguez, the Nick Gomez movie uh, with with Danny DeVito and and. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that's anyway, the only that's, time I ever go down sorry. go down memory lane. Yeah, sorry, you know, it's cloudy, Terry. Anyway, so that was the, the only time you'd see Mary, yeah, Mary Riley. So, uh, but, uh, but Mary Shirley's Mary Riley. Um, so, but since American jo- Zoetrope did this, and at the time, I guess. Coppola was ponying with the idea of maybe helming this movie. He likes to do Mario Puzo's Godfather. He likes. He didn't do Joseph Conrad's Hearts of Darkness. Uh, 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 what do you call Apocalypse Now? But he does. Um, he likes to throw the title, the yeah, author above the title. I, he might even do The Outsiders. I don't know. I don't think he does The Outsiders. Screw him. <laughs> what the hell? I don't know. He's confusing. Uh, <laughs> pick, pick a lane. Yeah, which, what do you want to do? <laughs> and then, then he did like Godfather Three. Didn't Bram? Because he wants to say it's the work. You know, so that's why they say Mary Shelley's Frankenstein comes out on the head of this. You know, Bran, uh, uh, Kenneth Branagh, this is his fifth movie at the time. He'd already, uh, in the director and starring seat, he'd done stuff in London. I think he did, like, maybe one of the, uh, a couple Shakespeare movies. He'd done much to do about nothing. He did another well, movie. Yeah, was that, that might have with Emma Thompson. That was right before this because he was coming off of this. Is that just before that? Yeah, he's coming off we of that. We had done Henry V. Yeah, that might have been his first that was and That was a big deal. Yeah. And it's still considered like one of the best Shakespeare yeah. film adaptations ever. And he's good he because... Did, and he did that other Emma Thompson movie. Which is right before... Uh, it was like a thriller. That, where they're living... Was he talking about the one where, they, where, they're, where they're, uh, they're living through time? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that kind of... 
has a, a couple themes that are from this movie. That's where he meets, I think, Emma Thompson, maybe. He did that. He did Much to Do About Nothing. And then coming off of Much to Do About Nothing, uh, he's doing this. And he agrees to take this with the caveat that they can shoot it entirely in England and have the post-production in England, too, and they agree. And then De Niro at the time is coming off of Bronx Tale. He had just directed and kind of starred in Bronx Tale. But for he, HBO, right? Or I think he originally did it for a cable channel, I think. Did he? Oh, I didn't know that. And then to it my got recollection, a, I could be it wrong. got a proper but, release. But I recall that that was for like HBO or, or another no, you know, like network a kind of cable a premium service. Because he, he talked about how his role in that wasn't as big... The, the role he was acting in as Brent, uh, Kenneth Branagh's is in this, yeah, the duality role, and and uh, at the time Kenneth Branagh at the same time was, you know, he'd done a lot of period stuff, so they were comfortable with him, and and I guess once they start shooting, they, and then they bring like we said Frank Darabont in to do stuff, was it Darabont? Darabont to 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 do a couple revisions, and then they start clashing when they get on set. Kenneth uh, Francis Ford Coppola producing and Kenneth Branagh, so at some point. They start clashing, so Francis Ford Coppola supposedly, you know, uh, throws his hands up and kind of like disowns the film. You go do your own thing, you know. We'll put it out, but you yeah. know, there's a, there's a little bit to talk about here. But before, I would like to talk a little bit about Mary Shelley and the book. Since yeah, we are celebrating the 200th anniversary. Two We're celebrating because we have these party hats on for <laughs> for, for for two hours. Before before we get more into the movie, I want to talk about Mary Shelley a little bit and. Her book because I, it, she's f- fascinating. Yeah, and it's it, it's uh, her life is kind of tragic, and then some of that tragedy kind of helps inform her her own story, and then which she ends up kind of distilling into this because yeah. you know it kind of it's it's sad. Plus the fact that you know one of the things we like to do is put things into like <laughs> historical context. So we're going to be talking about the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I think it's really important. Oh, okay. No, I thought you were joking. You're right. It's completely important. You know, because like we're coming. You know, she writes this at the age of 19. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, like eight, she might have started when she's 18, but she writes it. Yeah, she starts writing it in like 1817. Or She's born in 1797. She passes away in 1851. Mm-hmm. This comes out in 1820, 18, duh, 200 years, 1818. 18. And that's, you think about that in terms of Bram Stoker's Dracula doesn't, doesn't get written until like 19, 1898, I think it is. Yeah. Is, or 97 is Dracula. And then in that time, you know, you get um, in the 1830s, 60s is maybe um, uh, what's his face Edgar Allan Poe, you know. So it's she's doing this r- really early on. Yeah, well, you know? she this book is considered by many to be the first lit, lit, uh, literature literary work of science fiction. Yeah, like she's the mother of science fiction, which this. is which she doesn't get <clears throat> sometimes a lot of credit for because if you strip away the the horrendous, uh, uh, you know. Um, Incantate incantations. All the all the kind of ramifications of this being horror. It is a very much a sign uh, a scientific book. I mean, you get uh you know Jules Verne's doesn't start doing stuff till like the eighteen sixties or seventies. You know, twenty thousand leagues under the sea is eighteen seventy. So she, you have with the industrial revolution and and you know, I personally would argue that this is way more science fiction than horror. I agree with you. I think the horror is just a byproduct of the science uh, fiction going awry. Yeah. You know, which and, is very easy. And, you can, and probably like the Universal Monster movie. Yeah. I mean, you can even 
justify like some of H.G. Wells' stuff, like, you know, like, say, Island of Dr. Moreau. That could be more science fiction than horror. Like, so you certainly can make those arguments for a lot of these kind of books where they, they seem to fit in one genre, but you forget the, the essentials, the bare bones of this. It is all because of that knowledge that people are getting in the, you know, in the 19th century. So she's born in late 1700s, 17, what did you say, 97? 1797, yeah. Uh, her mother is like the earliest feminist. Yeah, she's very into women's rights and stuff at the time. Way before, you know, like... She's out earning a, earning a living and earning a wage, which is unheard of at the time, for the most part, for yeah, women I mean, at the time. Yeah, I mean, at a time, this is a time in England when if women had jobs and were married, they weren't allowed to keep their wage. Yeah, yeah. They weren't, you know, they weren't even considered citizens. Yeah, or if you, if you were like second class, working class citizen... Uh, you know, you grow up, and even from a child, you know. Listen, since you're like second class, you, you're you're destined to go into like just uh, what do you call it, domestic help. You know, you're a maid, you're a cook. You know, you're that kind of a thing. But this is like, as, I don't know how I guess century before like the suffragettes. Yeah, yeah, oh, and course, stuff. Yeah. You know, so like she's very progressive. Yeah, and her husband's very progressive, and she's able to then also not just that she's progressive, she's able to like. Well, you know, blaze away and be able to sustain an income and be a person, a name for herself. Well, yeah, I mean, she writes a book called The Vindication of the Rights of Women. And, the, you know, I think, uh, you know, I see it today, and I hope this isn't controversial, but I see that some, it seems to me that there's this connection for some people that it's, it's like being, fem, being a feminist is also like anti-male. Yeah. Which she totally wasn't. No. Her point was that the establishment's wrong. It's not men. I think a lot of the feminism today, you know, going from the, you know, I guess the 70s into now, will, is for the right or wrong reasons, probably for the, of course, the wrong reasons that, it, yeah, you're right, that it's, it's very like, it seems now anti-male. It's a stereotype. And, well, men are... Men are, on the whole are not great. No, they're they're chauvinist <laughs> pigs for the most part. So you know. I see their point. Yeah, but her, but she wasn't. She was. Yeah. She was like, it's the it's the you know it's the system that's wrong. Yeah, and her Which husband. Is, that's very controversial, right there. Just saying that, you know, that's like, well, well, yeah, in fucking in, in, in eighteen ninety seven, yeah. yeah. seventeen ninety seven, yeah. yeah, and you know, and she had a husband that was very supportive who also believed these things, uh, and unfortunately, she died. Because of complications of childbirth, oh, yeah. so Mary, her her name was Mary as well. Uh, her name was Mary Wollstonecraft. Yeah, and uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley or Mary Wollstonecraft uh, Godwin is her daughter. Yeah, who who we know as Mary Shelley because she later marries Percy Shelley. But so she's born of this woman. Uh, who's very progressive, very empowering for women. Unfortunately, never gets to know her, but no, gets to know her work. Yeah, gets to read her books, the things she's written. She dies in complications, like eleven days after. Yeah, in, of, but due to complications, Mary. Yeah, and she has this father who's very progressive, yeah. who's also very supportive, who believes that women deserve more rights. Yeah, and who's also a guy who. Uh, has these like these big gatherings at his house, which include poets and scientists. Yeah, uh, you know, people of of uh, great standing, but also great intellectuals. And so she grows up in this environment, being told that she can do, she can be educated. Yeah, which which wasn't common for women back then. Yeah, and so all of this has to do with something that you know would lead to her writing a great work. Yeah. 
but also around this time, it, it's post the French Revolution, which was all about, uh, uh, you know, fighting for some kind of equality. And I think her parents had a lot to do with that or new people involved. You have the Industrial Revolution, which you kind of pointed out, which is happening in the late uh, 1700s into the early uh, 1800s, which we get things like uh, the efficiency of steam power increases yep. and you get uh, you start to machining tools and textile manufacturing changes and iron industry and gas lighting becomes the railroad, the iron horse, that thing's, you know, plowing around, making waves in the, you know, you know, and uh, and then, of course, there's medical advancements. I mean, just and it's kind of it's kind of hinted at in the mo- in this movie. But like in 1796, one year before Mary Shelley's born, you get the first doctor performs like give somebody a vaccination yeah which changed the world and they in this movie they talk about that a lot of the stuff the science you see in the laboratory when he's doing stuff is for the most part true to the error i mean it might be a generation or 10 years early but it is kind of believed this is what they would be kind of doing at that point you know so for the most part a lot of the context of the brenna movie is you know laying in a solid foot in reality there my point is that like everything is you know Ever since the movie The Perfect Storm came out, this it's like a term now. Like, yeah. But it's like this perfect storm of things that come together that create, you know, an intellectual woman that, a young woman, a teenager, that could write a work that has now lasted 200 years. Yeah. Has been adapted into other media uh, and, and mediums, you know, maybe more so more than any other work other than like Dracula or the Bible. You know what and I mean? And it's hard because she's born into this kind of class system or, you know, she has the opportunity to do all this stuff because of the progressive fa- thinkings of her father, because of her stature and her father having some money. So she's educated properly. She has this kind of, you know, she's able to interact with these intellectuals or these, you know, real great minds of the day. She's able to start traveling. So, like, you know, in her teens, she's traveling all over Europe. She's yeah. going through Germany, Eastern Europe. And it's so during she's this countryside. And it's during this time that she meets Percy Shelley. Yeah. And they fall in love. Yeah. He's a little bit older. He's married with kids. But they love each other, and they become an item. And so this is also scandalous, yeah. I would imagine. They're and living he, in sin. Does he have... Now, Mary Shelley has a half-sister, right? She has a yeah, stepsister. She has a stepsister, because uh, so, she becomes involved, Named too. Claire, in this. Claremont? Yeah. And uh, that could be right. And she becomes interwoven because this becomes a bit of a not a not a love triangle, but and she, because then P- Percy is very close, the, the one that is courting Mary Shelley or Mary at this time, he has a friend that's a doctor, Lord the Lord Byron. Well, yeah, that this is where I'm a little unclear whether, and I feel like they Claire Claire Claremont hit her stepsister or half sister, Mary's half sister or stepsister or whatever. She gets involved with Lord Byron. Yeah. And I don't. I'm not clear if Percy already knows Lord Byron or just admires him. Yeah. But it, it's now, you know. The, so Percy and and Mary they travel a lot, and it's through these travels that we find things that people think might be inspirations for elements of the book. Yeah, like they travel someplace where there is a castle Frankenstein. Yeah. And they're told that may, that they might have been told like the local lore while they were there. See Frank Castle Frankenstein about a uh, about an alchemist named Johann Conrad Dippel, mm-hmm. who mm, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> who, oh, that old Conrad Dibble. Who, who's actually uh, doing this kind of shit. Yeah, crying. who, who uh, was born in Castle Frankenstein. That's your movie right there. When it was... It was something like it was. It had become like a, a medical ward during war. Yeah, and he was born there. But then later, as an adult and as an alchemist, uh, is let you know. Has rumor has it. <laughs> yeah, it kind of sneaks in there into Castle Frankenstein. And he's a grave robber and does experiments on bodies in like the basement of Frank Castle Frankenstein to not get caught and in secret. So they think that maybe during these travels. Percy and Mary might have heard this story and seen Castle Frankenstein. But of course, I think what Dion's getting to is like the infamous summer of uh it was it eighteen sixteen. The old the old summer of eighteen fifteen. Well, the but, year without a summer they called it. Well, I think it's eighteen fifteen, I think it's eighteen. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, it's yeah. eighteen sixteen, but it's because of something that happens in eighteen fifteen. Yeah, there's an there's an eruption of Mount Tambora in eighteen fifteen, and that clouds the air with this ash, so that you have a whole. And that's year. all the way in Indonesia. Yeah, but and it's such a big eruption with the cosmic winds or whatever, that solar it, winds that it fills the atmosphere with ash, and so in Europe you have a particularly dark and damp and cold summer because. Uh, the atmosphere is, is filled with ash, so the sun is it doesn't come out as much. It's, it's not as bright. All the planes and are grounded, ra- and it rains. Yeah, so the, they, all summer. What ends up happening is they the, go up to Lake Geneva. Yeah, and they're hanging out at Lord Byron's pad because Claire <laughs> Claremont invited her sister, her stepsister, yeah. Mary Shelley, who at, by that point Mary Shelley and Percy, uh, were Percy, an ha- they were an item and had a child, so they bring their son to Lake Geneva. And during that summer, apparently it's like very scandalous. Like there's a lot of sex going well, on. Well, this is the problem. Is reportedly. You've got, you've got nothing to do. It's evidently so bad outside. It's raining every day. So, you know, you can do that as much as you can, but they're kind of stuck inside. So they're, they're trying to entertain themselves. So they're reading a lot of like German ghost stories out of these books and stuff. No, there's a movie that came out <clears throat> in the 90s. I forget who directed it. Maybe uh, Ken Russell, okay, called Gothic, yeah. That's supposed to be based on this. Oh, this whole summer, this or night or whatever. The yeah. night where, uh, so they sit at home in the fire at night, and on one particular night, there's a lot of lightning and stuff, and uh, and there's another guy there too. There's what's his face? There's a doctor, a physician, yeah, who who also kind of elementary to the story which is quite funny but they they start talking about they're, they're trying to figure out stuff to do they're they're you know like we said they're reading these these ghost stories that are translated into french his name is john william Pelladori. <clears throat> they're reading ghost stories they're reading german ghost stories. yeah translated into french and uh one in particular that's that people still rave about and uh i think at that point byron's like hey why don't we all try to write our own ghost byron <laughs> <laughs> Byron issues a challenge, <clears throat> and I think it's very important that it's a challenge. And you said also that, yeah, there was kind of like, are they all having, I don't know. There's if, rumors that there was. Is Percy hooking up with Byron? I don't, no, know. I don't know. You know, because remember, what's-his-face was support, reportedly gay. It has nothing to do with this, but like you know, Bram Stoker was hooking up with Oscar Wilde. Like a lot of people back then were, you know, it was free love, but it was behind <laughs> closed doors. You know, so it's like, you know, so who knows what's happening because later on, Percy ends up even hooking up with Claire, which is, gets a little down the road. The half sister, yeah, you know. Um, so, but I think it's very important that it's a challenge. It's not just that Lord Byron says, "Hey, let's all write one." He's like, "Let's all write one, and whoever has the scariest one wins." Yeah, what do they win? Dun, dun, dun. So the, let's all write scary stories. Yeah, 
And so I think it's important that it's a challenge because then it becomes Mary Shelley says, "Now, which is I need to outright these men." Oh, and better, yeah, and make it, yeah, and and show that women can do just as. Now, apparently, yeah. she's you know <clears throat> she's kind of riddled with nerves or whatever about writing it because she goes days without being able to come up with an idea. And I think it's it's kind of romanticized where it's done in a night. You know what I mean? Like you yeah, look yeah. at like uh, I think it's the beginning of Bride of Frankenstein. They have a great little opening where it's Elsa Lancaster as Mary Shelley, and they show yeah. this like you know, and she ends up being the bride later on in the movie. But it, so I but. It takes place over, I guess. They give themselves... Well, like I mean, a, they're there for the spring and the yeah, summer. So, so like, it's a long time. Yeah. But clearly, like, the challenge happens in a night. Yeah, challenge! <laughs> she throws some salt down at the dance. Challenge! So so she, at first, can't think. She's getting, like you're saying, she's nervous. So she's like, I don't know what to do. Well, she she's, wants to be... She wants to, you know... She wants to write the scariest story. Yeah, so she... But she can't she wants think to of prove anything. herself as a woman. So and she, all these other people are starting to... The guys are starting to write stuff. I mean, And say, one of which... Is I think what you're hitting at with the, the Pal- doctor. Palidori, the doctor, he writes a vampire story based on vampire lore that he had heard, and people have said that there's Vamp- a, th- it's called vampire, right? There's a thought that this is maybe some of the inspiration that Bram Stoker pulled from when he wrote Dracula. Yeah, and they actually made I think an adaptation of that movie, Vampire, in thirty the early thirties, which is pretty good. It's kind of Nosferatu y. Yeah, you know, uh, but then that's so that's interesting as an offshoot of knowledge. You know that that came out of this little thing but then shelly here is trying to figure out what to do she 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 doesn't you know she's almost getting like you're saying she's getting anxiety and she's getting you know well yeah because she's every day she's reporting back that she doesn't have anything yeah but apparently so so the legend goes one of the days of this during this they start having a conversation about reanimation yeah and this kind of sparks something in her that later leads to a waking dream so the legend goes. Yeah. So she's having this idea of maybe I'll, I'll do a story about reanimating a corpse. And then she's, tri- that's the basis springs off of this, not a fever dream, but I guess she's saying awake. So she's like half asleep. Or she well, wakes she up sees the monster. She sees the monster. In a vision. Yeah. Not like standing next to her. But she's no, like, no. But she's like half know. between sleep and, you know, reality. And she's, yeah, she envisions, she sees all this. And it, and the, and this is spark. And this is the beginning of it. This yeah. is the beginning of a story that, has changed pop culture in ways that she never would have even know existed. For instance, I work in television. I work in post-production and television. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if people would be surprised to hear this, but often we, as the editors, make people say things that they don't say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The heck you say. You take words that they've said... And you combine them to have them say things. Yeah. Now, this is called universally in the industry, Frankenbiting. Wow. Is this, this is a little like insider. <laughs> insider. And that's a, that's a term people know as much as like, you know. Yeah. If you, work, if you work in television, or especially non-scripted tele, non-scripted television, television. Yeah. this is a common term. Oh, can you make that? Can you Frankenbite this? Can you get him to say this? Yeah. I mean, often it's just, often it's like. You don't have coverage, and they have to say something indicative yeah, of what's happening. Yeah, or they say it in a really long cut way, up. and we needed to say it in, like, one second instead of 30. Yeah. I liked it really good, but we didn't <laughs> know at the time it was going to be a really good <laughs> So uh, that's called Frankenbiting, and that comes from Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, now, she she's writing this, and, she, and Percy Shelley... Well, she's, now she thinks, like, well, you know what? Maybe I'll do, like, a short story. Yeah. And she's thinking maybe, you know, I can do something about... 
you know, uh, this idea she's starting here. But then, like you're saying, Percy said, encourages her and says, no, you're a woman. You could do anything. Yeah, like you write it. It's, it's good. Like write it as a novel. Yeah. Now, of course, at the time, there was worry that if it was written by, if everybody knew it was written by a woman, it wouldn't get published. Yeah. So it originally, it, it, it's originally in 1818, which is the anniversary we're celebrating right now, gets published uh, at the... Percy gets a publisher, and it gets turned down by a few publishers, but gets a, a small publisher in England to publish it. Says, a friend of mine wrote this, and he wants to publish it anonymously. So it's published, so when it's published in 1818, it's... Which was not, on, which was not uncommon. Yeah, because also she thinks that the tint of a woman writing this would get it not looked at before, you know, wouldn't even be deemed, it wouldn't be reviewed on its own merits. Yeah, plus it's controversial. Very controversial. I mean, it's anti-religion yeah i mean in essence yeah and it's just and would have been viewed that way yeah that man can create life does it doesn't need god to do it yeah uh you know today we when we look at it we probably don't look at it through more of a of a, of a religious eye but at the time it certainly probably would have been viewed that way and she's all and at this time what is she 17 you said she's yeah, like you know, eighteen or nine. Eight, yeah, I think, you know. I think she gets it gets published when she's twenty. <clears throat> and this is eighteen. Th- this comes out eighteen eighteen, and then in eighteen nineteen, the vampire comes out, and uh, she ends up writing this the whole summer while she's in Switzerland. You know, yeah. And then and then it comes out. So that must be the summer of what eighteen? We said eighteen sixteen or so like that. So she ends up getting the thing out in eighteen eighteen, and then it's kind of mixed reviews where people are. Some people hate it. Some people like it. I mean, also because it's her first novel, I think there's a bit of. Um, you know, her trying to figure her prose out and trying to figure out a form, a certain form. But it is you know? really kind of beautifully written. Yeah. I mean, certainly people spoke <laughs> English in a, in a way that we don't speak <clears> it today. <throat> and it probably seems, you know, fancier than what we're used to now. But it is, I mean, it is a, it's, it's dense. Yeah. And it's wordy. But it is kind of, it is really a beautifully written book. So to think that a teenager wrote this, and a teenage girl wrote this at yeah. a time when it wasn't common for women to be educated, let alone write a book, you know, like a novel. Yeah, I mean, and, and it has, she utilizes the travels that she that she was just on uh, touring Europe in the summer, and uh, Paradise Lost is very influential at this time by John Milton, so she uses aspects of that, and then... That we allude to. Of course, to. the story of Prometheus. Yeah, I was going to say, right at the head of the cast, we allude to is that, that there's a, uh, what do you call that, a second title to it? The modern yeah. Prometheus. There's also, you know, we, I mentioned the, the Castle Frankenstein and the Conrad Dipple stuff, but there's also uh, science going on around this time and theories and yeah. stuff. And these are some of the people that maybe her father even knew. Some of these people might have even come to the house, but you have uh, three specific people are thought of as being possible inspirations for her to do this. Uh, uh, Erasmus Darwin, who was the grandfather of Charles Darwin. Yeah. Who, uh, Eras- who, who doesn't know Erasmus? <laughs> oh, Erasmus. <laughs> oh, oh the, the common misconception is that Charles Darwin invented this theory of evolution. Yeah. But that theory starts with his grandfather, Erasmus. <laughs> old Erasmus. Good old Erasmus. Oh, you know, always good for a laugh. Good you old know what Erasmus. I love is a good bottle of old Erasmus sarsaparilla. Nice to have sitting on my port-a-cold porch. <laughs> I'm a rocket chair. Well, oh, right. we're talking about the days of yesteryear. So we have this <laughs> this theory of evolution, which is nature changes, you know, beings change through time. Yeah. Uh, which is very progressive 
and probably controversial at, yeah. at this time. Again, anti-religion um, to, to this day <laughs> yeah. for some people. Uh, you got Humphrey Davy, who's a chemist, and he is believing that you, he has this theory that you could create life through chemistry, chemicals, yeah. that you could create life uh, in a new way. And then, of course, you get uh, Luigi Galvani, who believes in re- reanimation, that you could revive the dead. And his nephew, following what he's, his theories, his nephew, Giovanni Aldani, in 1803, yeah. was kind of notorious for, for like a theater crowd, taking the corpse of a murdered, of a executed murderer and running electricity through it. And it sat up. And it flexed its muscles and stuff. So full rigor was and going like its on. its eyes opened and stuff. Well, this sounds like gangs of fun in the old coral halls. And this idea that electricity could maybe revive the dead. Well, I wonder also, because my, my history is what, when, like, what's, uh, you know, Franklin in, in the States doing with, you know. Oh, well, that, you know, <laughs> you know, that's I mean, a very good point. Because you know, cause, I mean, what he's I was testing getting, with electricity. What I was getting at at the time. You know, this period, this time period yeah. being this a perfect backdrop for a young girl having parents that are progressive, but also this time of, of uh, industry and technological and medical advancements. Uh, in, 18, in 1750 yeah. is when Benjamin Franklin flies the kite with the, with the and key. is the first one to capture. Let's hope young people are still being taught this. <laughs> Electricity, yeah. He capture, is the first one to capture an electric charge. Yeah. Uh, flying a kite in with a key in, in lightning, so it's sure it's it's fifty years, you know, still, fifty six years. Under, I mean, that's still like a big deal. Yeah. So electricity is becoming a thing. I mean, by with, that the advert, with the steam engine, I'm, I'm sure steam engines are kind of making some sort of electricity. Steam engines start in the late 1600s, but by the time Mary Shelley is is a child and growing up, like the advancements. And steam power is now being used. I'm sure in locomotives and stuff like yeah, some sort of thing. Also, on a, on a quick side note, yeah, uh, Benjamin Franklin is the one that coins terms that are still used today, like conductor, mm-hmm. battery, yeah, uh, positively and negatively negatively charged things like that. Those were all things that he created in his experiments with electricity that were just happening less than half a century. Yeah. By the time she was born. It's like us in the 60s. That was 50 years ago. How crazy is that? <laughs> you know? And then also for her at the time in 1815, uh, which is a couple years before this, she gives birth two months prematurely to a baby that dies two weeks later. Yeah. And during this time, Percy, for some reason, didn't want to care uh, about the, the condition of the baby. And he accidentally, accidentally goes and fucks off with Claire, the half-sister, for a little while while this is all happening. So they have this real scandalous kind of affair. And I guess at some point um, she takes him back or this is okay. You know, I don't know how people process these kind of things, but then the, the baby dies prematurely two months later. And then this happens what within a year or two years, they're going on this trip. So she has the idea. It must've affected her. We have already talked about personally, her mother dying um, in childbirth, basically of her. And then her having this child that dies, you know, two, less than two weeks later, and then the father, Percy, of the child, her husband or yeah. man at the time, her, her baby's mama, her baby's daddy, he ain't around for the yeah. baby, you know. So that has elements, I think, which really plays into the whole idea of Victor with the monster later on, you know. Definitely that, but also the fact that she's, pro- you know, obviously a bit of an oddball in the context of the society, being someone who's born of such progressive parents, 
someone who's uh, educated and intellectual, uh, uh, being a woman, uh, also being someone that is in a very passionate and serious love affair with a man that's married with two children. Yeah. She had to have, was likely thought of as being an outsider and probably felt that way. And, uh, you know, having lost her mother, like you said, I mean, all things, all of these are elements that she was probably, that she was experiencing in her life that certainly reared their head <coughs> in the work. Yeah. And then we said the creative influences with paradise lost, um, her Percy, he's, he's a writer also at the time. His pen name is Victor. So you could kind of start plucking out where she's getting like the Frankenstein castle. She, she traveled past, uh, you know, uh, all these little elements that are coming together that are bringing her this story. And then we talked about the modern Prometheus. There's the uh, Greek gods, Prometheus, Zeus. Prometheus was the person, which is kind of interesting here, where Prometheus is the person that, that Zeus uh, gave the, the human... Uh, he gave the job of creating life. Yeah, and, he's, and he gives the humans... Um, various things but he also gives them the culmination with Zeus didn't want it he gives them fire yeah. and by giving them fire which is I guess kind of i.e. like an enlightenment or IG um, and because of that they're able to then kill cook their meat so there is a view here of like a philosophy of you know we became murderers to a certain extent like you know and killing animals for food where we maybe didn't need that before with prometheus giving us fire yeah. and us with the idea of enlightenment and then they're all kind of like real with well, fire becomes you say that because in the context of the book now the book itself you know the movie obviously can't encompass the entire book and it also veers off in my opinion in some very interesting ways which i think we should talk about but uh one of the things is when in the book, which also happens in the movie, but when the when the creature comes to Victor and says, "I want you to make me a wife, make me uh, a wife, a mate, and make her ugly so that nobody else wants," yeah, <laughs> only I'm gonna want her. Uh, and then, and in the in the movie, De Niro, the creature says, "I'll take her north, and you want to, and I'll we'll never see people again." In the book, he's like, "We'll go north, and then we'll go over, and then we'll head down into like South America." And in the book, he says, and we'll live on, like, berries and nuts and stuff. Like, we won't even eat meat. Like, yeah. we won't even kill animals. Yeah. Which is just, like, it's interesting because you're saying that. Yeah, like with the connotation of, of Prometheus to bring in, like, and then all, you know, so it's it has that, I don't know, that's, that, go down that avenue of the debatable of, you know, do you need meat or whatever like that with the veganism or Now, the book, I think, where, where none of the movies kind of hit it completely right this movie tries is that like a third of the book is the words of the creature. Yeah. It's the creature telling Victor his so, story. Another thing that's really interesting at this time too, which I think is exciting. Um, they they just had a, mo a show on uh, this past year on AMC called the terror. And that was about the, these, these expeditions up North to try to f discover passageways to the new world to go away, maybe over the top through the North pole, either to the North pole or find a passageway, I think, over the North Pole into areas maybe to get down to Canada, that kind of a way. And so you had a lot of explorers going up there and trying to find, you know, explore ways. That's where, like, the Hudson River. Hudson goes up there, and then he fucks off, and the people get pissed at him, so they put him on a rowboat, and that's the last he's seen because the crew's like, see you later, you're crazy. You know, they leave him up there, and then who knows what happened to him. Uh, you have a lot of these explorers, and that's what the, the, that show The Terror is about, which it's a true story, but they don't know what happened to the ship to Terror and the other ship. And so they made this historical fiction that's this this horrific thing happened. But in this book, for the pur purposes of here, 
they start the the novel. Mary starts the story up in the you know the northern yeah. regions of the world where there's this expedition for this this captain who's trying to find a way I think to either cut through the North Pole or get to the North Pole. And this was perilous for a lot of people because this was uncharted territory. You're in a, a wooden vessel with yeah, three masts, harsh, uh, the harshest of environments. Yeah. So you're and then you're you're hiring out your crew, and when you're hiring out your crew like that, there is you know there's chances where they might want not want to go along with you. So this starts off where you have kind of a man who's kind of got a singular vision. He's kind of like, you know, destined it's, it's this or bust. And he's trying to find this, this, you know, this passage up there, or the, you know, a way through the ice. And in the book, he, which is, I think not in any other so far up to date versions of the Frankenstein. So you have, so you have this translated the book ended. Yeah, the bo- it's bookended with this story. Of, they find Victor. Yeah. So while they're up there, they get stuck in ice, and then they find coming off the ice is Victor, our, our, our scientist. And then he comes on board. He, and, so, and he relays the story. And it's told much, I think, the same way as Bram Stoker later on, is this told through letters, right? Well, the, the, it, the, book, the book opens with a series of letters from the captain who might be named Walton. Yeah. Uh, write the letters that he's writing to his sister about what's going on. Up and there. so, with the first couple of letters, they're just like we're on this expedition and blah blah blah. And then the letter in the in the letters, he reveals we found this person. Yeah. Well, one is like we saw something, and then later we found this person. And then he writes how him he becomes friends with Victor. He likes Victor a lot. They become very friendly. And then it's like Victor has asked Victor wants to tell me his story, and then. The story, I believe, the story is what because then because then because then, then it goes to chapter one, yeah. and then it just starts Victor's then story. It's Victor's story. So it's basically like the idea is Victor's relaying his story so that like Walton will like write it down. I and think. It, it's kind of confusing because there's no real differences in style, so it just you have to be really paying attention because now Victor starts. He goes. But I don't. Story. But for the most part, it's not like a series of letters. It opens with a series of letters. But then after that, it's just. But then dictation. it's just like his dictation of Victor's story, and then which gets kind of convoluted because then in that's, the middle, that's why I'm saying in the middle of it, the creature, the, the creature tells Victor his story. Yeah, and it's funny as I'm reading, as you read it. It's long. Oh, yeah. You know, but he's like, and then you, I, you left, and then I left, and I grabbed some clothes, and I went to the woods, and blah, blah, blah. And you can just imagine, like, he's like orally telling Victor the story that Victor's like looking at his watch. He's like, yeah, can we you get to the point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get, I get it. Shit was hard, and I'm, I'm sorry, but can you get to the point of the story? Because yeah, so it goes on for a long time. It's kind of conv- so. There's so it's it's three different narration narrators kind of telling you this story, yeah. and the story is bookended by by this story. We can get into we'll segue into the movie and get into yeah, the, which I mean is in the movie, yeah, for the most part, and you then, know, because then he comes down and. When Victor passes away, and then they they see the creature. Yeah, he's crying over. Which, it. by the way, I keep on calling the creature because in the book he's never called the monster. Yeah, they never use the. She's sheet. called the creature or the being. Yeah, or or, or or Victor uses some other harsh language too. Whatever, I mean, he he calls him like you know the wench, the the uh, the demon, the devil, the fiend, it, the vile insect, the abhorred monster, the fiend, wench, devil, abhorred so, devil. Now that we're you know, getting close to running out of time. <laughs> yeah, we have the segue. <laughs> Let's into, talk about the movie. The segue into the so then so uh, the the biggest thing with Brand I wanted to do here is doing this movie is that he wanted to try to his angle, which I think is a very good idea to take on to this, is to try to figure out all the ways take as much from the book as possible, 
that has never been used, keep that in and try to throw as much out stuff that was created for the movies in the past and all this kind of stuff so you can have as true to form as much as you can to the original text, which is kind of hard. But yeah. So that's how you get the opening here. You have Aiden Quinn in the movie. He's going up and he's, he's trying to find this passage. I think here's the problem with Brana. And I like Brana's movies. Yeah. I love Henry V. I even like The Hamlet. Yeah, I do too. It's a super long Hamlet movie, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is like the first time it had ever been filmed in its entirety, yeah. the entire text. Uh, I don't know if it's pressures, but casting does never seems to be a strong suit from, from Mr. Brana. Yeah. Like, unfortunately, Aiden Quinn, I like Aiden Quinn. Yeah. But the fact that, like, everybody's British, you're making a choice. I mean, clearly, like, Victor Frankenstein wouldn't talk you know, wouldn't be British. Yeah. I mean, he's from Switzerland. He's going to school in, like, yeah. you know, in Stab or whatever yeah. you say. It's, but it's, it's the film logic. Of yeah. Like, yeah they're, they're, no matter what they're going to talk. And it's like you kind of have to make a choice, and yet you got, like, Aiden Quinn with, like, a Jersey accent, like a, like a contemporary Jersey accent. Yeah, and... Uh, just talking the way he talks. And they're all supposed to be from Switzerland, or so they're all supposed to have... You like, know, yeah. so, but you make the choice. You know, you make a choice that, like, all the Nazis are going to talk yeah, with British, English, with yeah. British accents, yeah. you know, or, or stuff like that. Um, so you have that here. So, so yeah. it's weird, and I wonder if he's just, like, gotten pressure to put American actors in it. And, you know, here's the big question, because there's a lot of stuff stylistically I'd like to talk about. But the big thing is, I'd love to get your point of view, as because there's some people that really like De Niro as the monster, and I'm wondering, like, what your thoughts are. Um, as De Niro as the monster? Yeah. I think he's great. I mean, at the time, this is, this is opening another can of worms of the, of the, the actor Robert. Have we ever had De Niro on the cast before? <laughs> has De Niro ever visited? I don't think he's visited. I don't, I don't think, you know, and there's, there's a, a, you know... At the, at the time, De Niro, <clears throat> people like him, people like Pacino were like still Renaissance men, you know, and they weren't. It's hard because when you have a career as long as they have, people will slag them off now, particularly Pacino and De Niro, because, oh, they're just making crap. They haven't made a good movie in years. But it's like they've made pretty groundbreaking movies through their entire careers, and then they start trying to do different things. And if you're around long enough, you end up sadly becoming like a parody of yourself. Yeah. And then maybe if you can hold out, you can then make another something good. And this could go in music, any kind of genre, I think. You can have a kind of second revival and then become the learned storied old man that people still love and you're not a parody anymore so with De Niro he's trying different things at this point you know and he's always one who's done the side art house film I mean he did like the mission in the 80s which I love he's done here and there he's done some interesting projects Angel he'll, Heart. he'll take Angel Heart you know he'll do these kind of interesting side projects he did um uh, he worked with what's his face, Sergio Leone, with oh, Once Upon a Time in America in the seventies. He did the um, what's the name of that book? The Italian with maybe Mastrioni, the the nineteen hundred or whatever the um, tycoon, the last tycoon, I think it is. Uh -huh. You know, he's in that. So he he does choose these stylistically. You know, I think to try to uh, you know uh, what do you call that? Uh, challenge himself here. The idea was they wanted to cast somebody big enough because everyone's going to be looking at them. Who's playing the monster and how are they doing it? Yeah. So they want to have someone with stature, is what Branagh's saying, to cast in there. And then when you do that, you got to try to have him have a different angle on the creature. So for me, I liked it back then, and I still like it now. I, I, you know, he, I mean, when he's talking a little bit, you know, he, he has a kind of American accent or sometimes. Which is weird because even when he's the... But he's the killer of the John Cleese character. He's got like a British. He's got like an Irish British, like yeah. almost like an Anglo-Saxon, you know, kind of a thing, which is good. I like it there. But I, so I kind of believe in the, you know, because he's basically taking John Cleese's brain. 
Yeah. So who knows? Who knows why he's talking like this? You know, it's reflection. He's remembering, learning, and also like learning or remembering how to talk by listening to to the people next door. People talk. Yeah, or whoever this was. Polish. You know, because I, you know, like Robert Ebert really uh, liked De Niro in it. Yeah. I personally, and you know, this is just the personal feeling. I mean, I personally feel like he's totally miscast in this movie. Yeah. The only scene I think like he's good or or not bad is the scene where he's talking to the old man. Yeah. Because he really does seem like he's searching for the language. Yeah. Like he's trying, he's searching for the words that he Well, that's one of the say. most powerful scenes for me in that, you know, I mean, for me, I, f- the, the whole time I feel sad for, him. but everything after that, I just think he's like, so not good. And I don't necessarily blame him. Yeah. Because you know, it's, he's, be- he's being directed by somebody to do it that way. Yeah. Cause I mean, I find it being, you know, the, the look is fabulous how they did this, this, this prosthetic and the makeuping. And, uh, it's so iconic. You see the images afterward, like when he burns the cabin down, he turns around. And like I remember that being a selling point, and then when, yeah, but that's so you know, Frankenstein. Well, I see. I I I, I wonder if it's. it's so, I mean, it's part of the the movie it's itself doing is it, very you know because I feel at the beginning of the movie, to me it sound, feels like like maybe he had like a time limit, Brana, and he's trying to stick everything in because at the beginning, when he meets Aiden Quinn on the boat and he starts talking, all of a sudden it starts. Cu- picking up the pace really quickly and it feels like we're seeing previews for like next week's tv movie well it's tough you know? because if you read the book um which i mean you did but it's been you know it's been a long time the book is like he like creates the monster in like chapter two i know and that's I, the thing you know, but, <laughs> and, and it, it's <clears throat> not like this big lavish you know no i, mean, I love it in this you, like, no the, you don't that's the thing i i when i read the book i i, I turned the page and i'm like did i miss the part there's no, there's no like, there's like a par- yeah, there's a paragraph. She, she goes into no detail of how this, she talks about how he discovered in, in university some in, sort in of. In two years. He, yeah, he did dis- a quick study. He dis- discovers some sort of way of, what is it? He's something to, 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 to bring back life uh, through, I think, medicines or some sort of chemicals or, or something. But she never really, and then she talks about maybe he's using electricity, but it's very vague. And hey, it works good because she doesn't have to get herself boxed in to explain that. Yeah. So but when I read the, the visual book, medium, you yeah, have you to have show to, it. you know, so when I read the book, I'm like, holy, and then we should cite two years later, the book comes out 1818. I think in 19, 1821, they do a play. Yeah. And that really hypes up the popularity of the book. And then we didn't get to, I think, what is it? 1830 when the book 1831 is 1831 or 32 when it's re-released. Re- and it's not, it's still not with her. I think it's her name there, it's but it's her name. But like everything after that, it's just like not, everything she writes after, like doesn't have her name on it. It just says by the author of, of yeah. Frankenstein. So I, I think it's, it's, so then it's hard because then, so my issue is when reading the book, I didn't, I think Victor Frankenstein's like a horrible character. Like I, I found him nothing. There's no redeeming qualities in him in the book. And they try to, they have to, in this movie, they have to make him, you have to empathize with them for some, or, or yeah. halfway through people are like, who the fuck, I don't care well, about but, him. You know, that's why they give him that line, like, what have I done? Because he's such a fucking asshole. Well, yeah, I think he says that in the book too, but it's, here's the, here's the thing. It's really interesting. I like this movie a lot. So, I mean, the fact that I, you know, I don't love De Niro in the, in the role of the monster is not... You know, it's not. I'm not trashing this movie for it because I actually really love this movie, and it's funny because you're talking about like Coppola and Darabont, and Bar- Darabont has said yeah. that he doesn't like this movie, quoting something like, 
it's the best script I ever wrote and the worst movie I ever saw. Yeah. And his whole thing is that the script and, in his opinion, Shelley's source material is very subtle. Yeah. And this movie's very loud and over the top. Yeah. But I love that this movie's so melodramatic. Yeah. Well, he's, he's, <laughs> he's trying for that because then another thing Brian had to do was decide, are we doing a historical piece here or are we doing something a little different? His idea was to do it kind of like a fairy tale. Yeah. You know, it's going to take place back then. It's it's going to be of the time, but if we get mired down in, in in period detail and accuracy, that's you know. So that's why some of the stuff is kind of like bigger than life. These that blue ballroom is so huge looking on a wide shot, but then when you're in close up, it looks realistic. It doesn't yeah, look like yeah. a Tim Burton movie. So but, I think that goes to why some of this stuff is so outlandish. But like, I but you know but yeah. I think but, but, a, a lot of people get pissed, uh, upset about that, where it's but, like, you know, like some people say to me, it's like, do I really need to see, you know, a shirtless Victor Von Frankenstein running around for half the, you know, it's I like, do, you know, he's fucking he's, dreamy he's, yeah, he's, he's jacked, he's got long hair, he's, you know. Uh, but here's the thing, you know, I love, I love it about this movie. It's what I like about this movie, is that it's so, like, melodramatic and over the top, and the music is a little bit over the top. Yeah. It's like a hyper... You know, it's like hyper realism or something. Key. And this whole montage in the beginning, what you're saying it like it. Once you get going, it's just like short scene after short scene because we got to get to yeah, we got to get to the meat of the movie. But it's like you know, the, he falls in love with Elizabeth, and there's all this stuff. And, no, see, I don't have problems like, but I love, but I just like there's all this I love about it, and it's funny that like that's what and for Col- and if that's what Coppola because I also heard that like that's one of the things Coppola doesn't like about it. You were indicating that there was problems on set and stuff, but I somebody I was reading something. I think, no, I think it's, it's this, and it's funny like Coppola after Bram Stoker's Dracula is going to complain that this is over the top. Yeah, I know, I know that he's not liking, <laughs> which is I don't know why what, what his which is possibly the most over the top movie ever made. Yeah, Bram Stoker's Dracula, but it's funny because uh, this. I just lost my train of thought. The, the over the top and the, the the with with the with the with the pacing of the movie and everything and yeah, it's just uh, it's just it's the thing that's in, like I find very endearing about the movie is like this major league like over dramatic well, thing, and I think it's oh I know where I was going. Okay, go. Um, but before I say that point, quickly, it's like. It feels more like an old, you know, like an old movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like stylistically he's going for something that's more akin to what we think of as being like an old Hollywood. Yeah. We want like, over this. the top. Yeah. But where I was going was, you know, obviously Darabont probably didn't have any say in this, but if you're going to have problems with the fact that it's over the top, like, then why did you hire Kenneth Branagh to do it? Yeah, he's like this theater actor who makes the, who at this point had made these like big lavish like well, kind of over that, the top I Shakespearean think movies. That's the thing is that they they he's able to successfully handle Shakespeare into these big lavish costume dramas. I'm just wondering if you wanted it to be subtle. Yeah, why you should have hired a more subtle yeah. director than Kenneth Branagh. And I guess they're looking it. at they're looking at both of them here. They're going to get two for one. And that's the reason why I like De Niro in it, because De Niro is the outside. I mean, aside from the fact that he's an American, bringing him into the production makes it stand out. So it's not totally this, like, uh, you know, masterpiece or, you know, this British helmed complete production of something like a, you know, Pride and Prejudice or some sort of like, Mm -hmm. you know, one of these miniseries is, you know. So bringing De Niro into it, you know, he, he, he 
kind of accentuates or, or punctuates this over-the-topness of how he looks. And another thing I should bring up is at the time when this movie came out, I was hugely into model making, my, my uh, you know, movie models and stuff, and I had the official model for this. And usually the models that I would do, the Horizon models were vinyl. They were about a foot tall. His model for this is about 15 inches tall, and he's huge, and it's naked. And yeah. it's him, like, in this really weird position, like, run, scurrying away, you know, with chains around him. So um, I love the, I, the how he looks in this and how De Niro, um, how they, they played everything. And, the, the, you know, the reason he, you know, the, the, he needs a new leg and he needs a new eye and then this. So for his portrayal in this, it seems like, to me, they were going the right way because it's logical. They need someone big enough to be able to, 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 to build a movie that's bigger than Kenneth Branagh that'll play, I guess, in America well. And they want something that hasn't been done before and they want someone with, like, you know, prestige who they think, you know, can play the monster because then people are only going to be either comparing it to Boris Karloff or they're going to be comparing it to, I guess, what would be the Christopher Lee, mm-hmm. you know? So I think all these kind of go into the same because it's it's the movie seems like it's going so fast like the beginning seems like it's very rushed when they're in the up north pole and then it kind of slows down and i'm completely i love the pacing and i love the idea too that says they're trying to do they're trying to make it markedly different from the earlier movies instead of it being a dingy castle he's in this very bright you know world with these beautiful you know uh dancing is an important theme in this movie movement i love the camera movement uh what's his face roger pratt the dp who did batman at the time and did a lot of very other uh very uh heavy big movies they always have the camera moving and then you know it's part of like it's part of that over the top especially in the beginning of the movie as we're like you know racing through Kenneth Branagh's life yeah from a child into his teen years before he's going to the mother dying the you mother know. dying you know like the, the <laughs> dramatic <laughs> yeah. in home deliver, trying to deliver the baby and this is like these Him coming down the cameras. stairs you know, and see like a lot of people don't seem I I mean maybe not with De Niro but the other people just don't seem like they developed enough like Ian Holmes great actor but it's like you know he's he's working with what he can work with there you know um same thing with uh, Helena Cottom Bonham Carter yeah you know she I forgot how young she was in this movie I think she plays a great role in this movie too you know it's interesting because I mean I don't know this is uh I remember and I could be remembering incorrectly but this is you know what broke up She's what broke up Emma Thompson. And yeah, Kevin she was Brown on this, this movie. And I wonder, because I think she might have also broken up Tim Burton's marriage. She's a house wrecker. That- oh, and then she, yeah. Cause she, oh, cause she, Burton was married to the other girl yeah, from like, like Mars Lisa Attacks. Marie or something. Her, and Ed Wood. Model. I'm sure, yeah. So she's in this. I mean, there's so, there's so many binary characters that are, you know, you, you notice. John Cleese as well. You know, that's a great cast where they they give him fake dentures and they yeah, like don't a think, different i think that you know? fake dentures are a little over the top for me i don't think yeah. you really need them well i liked it because it gives that look of the time people having a weird you know yeah but like it's also like overbite here's the thing it's distracting for you it's distracting because it's john cleese yeah one it's like john cleese, well, that's why they hired him i mean john it's funny cleese's humor him. you know it's like when you like when bill murray first did dramas yeah uh what's the name of the first Lost in translation no before in the, like, oh, before oh, oh. that I forget the name of the movie. Yeah. And people couldn't, it was tough for people to buy because. Oh, and he came out around Ghostbusters and it kind of flopped. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because his comedy is so kind of deadpan. Yeah. That it's hard to know if he's trying to be, if, yeah. he, if he's so funny they or hired not. John Cleese, so they gave him a fake chin you, and they gave him a fake teeth. Yeah, and you're hiring a guy who, not, not that Mighty Python are 
uh, subtle humor, but like his humor in those crazy scenarios is deadpan. Yeah. You know, it's playing it seriously. Uh, and I actually don't mind that John Cleese is, is in the movie. I like John Cleese and I actually like him in this role. I just think if you're going to find some, if you're going to pick somebody that's maybe in 1990, well, by then he had fish called Wanda, you know, he, he was huge. He yeah. His- so, I mean, you're going to pick somebody that that's that recognizable. I don't think to me, I wouldn't have given him dentures yeah you know to make him look like i say they were, they were looking they didn't want him to smile they wanted to be you know morose the entire time so i mean it, it is an interesting idea of how he cast this thing you know and then he has the friend uh the kid from um amadeus yeah you know animal house which by the way i once stood behind in a mcdonald's him in line at a McDonald's. poster pre frankenstein <laughs> oh this was in new york city oh okay so this was just a few years ago uh, what's his name? His name's escaping me at the time, but I always liked him. Uh, Tom Hulse. Ah, okay. This was, uh, you know, this was after he was in Delta House and he went to metal school. School. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, you know, this movie. Like I said, I love like its over the topness, its melodramaticness, and I think it he does do a good job of of not correcting, but pulling creating things for the movie that makes it work in in the context of a shorter story now, when you read the book um you read it most recently for this podcast yeah how did you feel about the victor character i mean did you care near you know here or there or you know what i mean like when i remember reading it 10 years ago or so it was like you know he's a dick because this whole idea which i think you get that in maybe some of the other certainly the Karloff version where it's like he's I mean, the idea, I guess, of the two, they say for the stories, is that she almost, Shelley creates two protagonists, Victor, and then she creates the creature. Because yeah. then, like you said, Victor starts telling the story, and then the creature starts telling the story. And it's very sad that, like, the idea of, you know, want, there's a flash in the pan, and then the creature's created, and the creature just wants to kind of, like, you know, and then I get that this is the big thing with Kenneth Branagh. He kept thinking the idea in his head was the delivery room and thinking of a baby just born that's crying for its dad and the dad like pushing it away. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that well, I find that hugely that pulls on my heart. I'm a Pisces, so that that just gets me so emotional. I feel so bad for the for the character and then the De Niro. So I think maybe that's my save the cat with De Niro, where as soon as he gets out of the house with the jacket on, and then the the villagers start beating the crap well, out here, of him. Here's where I think. Po- here's the positives that yeah. I think th- things that he maybe altered a bit from the book. Not a lot. I mean, there's scene at the end, which I think is one of the best scenes in the movie, which is not in the book. The one that Bran- uh, Brana put in? Where they resurrect. He resur- he reanimates this, the, yeah. uh, Elizabeth. It goes as far as where the, the creature comes back. His, his, Victor Frankenstein, like in the movie, his, his, his brother, little brother's killed. He goes back to, to, the, to, to Geneva to see what happened. The creature shows up there. He's like, hey, I walked here. You know, and uh, <laughs> what took you so long? Yeah, and and <laughs> I'm going. This is kind of off the book. He meets him in a hut on the glacier, and he says, and, and it's like the the most like it's like the sig- the significant the most significant probably scene in the whole book where the two of them are correspond. And that's where the creature lays out the victory. Well, well, you were gone. This is what happened to me. <laughs> and he tells. So the creature to end it all, the creatures. The creature's kind of a nice. It's it's basically what we bitch the about the human has race. Kill, has killed the little brother. Yeah, but initially he he doesn't see the little brother and wants to kill him, which is kind of portrayed in the book. He sees and the kid freaks out. He's like, "I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you." In the book, the the kid's like, "Well, my dad is 
Alphonse Frankenstein, and you don't mess with me. And he's like, Frankenstein. <laughs> Frankenstein. <"Wah!" laughs> so it's like, yeah, but it's the like creatures. He, he tantrums, which is understandable because he's a kid. He's, yeah, he's like, he's under, he's under eight or something. So it's like, we always talk about like how shitty humans are in the human yeah. race. And, all, and it's like to hear, it's like the creature's born and it just needs to learn again. You know, it comes out kind of like a child, and instead, it, it, it gets treated with cruelty, meanness. It hides out yeah. into you know, next to a farm. But anyway, so uh, what, there's this. We'll get we'll get to that. Yeah. Scene. So there's a scene where they're where they're talking but, on the. But before we get to that, yeah, because that that I feel like we can we can get more into that scene at the end. But what I like about these earliest parts of the book, so we took a little detour there and turned back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> get back on the road. Get back on the road. <laughs> we'll take that detour in a second. Is Giving you gave Victor the motive. His mom dies in the book, giving child giving birth to his little brother, like in the movie. But I don't even know if it's that. I don't recall. I read it quickly. But anyway, like that's not the motivation. Well, his catalyst is because of his. The, the, in he, the book, it, in the book, is that his mom died. No, he he just wants to do it. That's that's the that's the thing. Oh, see, I thought I remember is, in the book, in the is book that it's, it, he's so hurt by the mom dying. It no, brings that, up the idea. <laughs> that's the that's that, that's what Brana does, oh, which I, I think is great. Yeah. And uh, so what Brana does is like he creates a motivation to want to do it. In the book, he does. He just goes to university, and two years later, he creates a monster. Yeah. And then then he takes what four months off. And but to, to heal. <laughs> let, me, let me get through my th- yeah, sorry. my, my thoughts. Um, he uh, and then he creates this giant monster. He's like, I'm going to make it big and blah, blah blah. And he creates this monster. And then the minute the monster comes live in the book, he's just like. Oh shit! Like, yeah, that's what I mean. I created something ugly, and then he and then he just like runs away. Well, he retreats into his room, wakes up the creatures below him, like hey, and then he's like ah, he runs away, and that's that. But this- it's out of like uh, it's out of like disgust for what he did, but because the he's like you know I knew the creature was ugly before, but now that it's alive, like it's really grotesque. And I think what's interesting about what Brana does, there's still a bit of that with this. You know, one Brana thinks it's dead, so that's why he kind of there's a little bit. It, it's still a little bit of that. But what I think's interesting about what Brana does is because when you look at any of the monsters, other than maybe the Karloff monster who has like a flat head and really doesn't look human, uh, but any of the adaptations that tried to make it truer to the book, you're always like, he doesn't look that bad. Yeah, like yeah, he looks he's scarred and he look, but he doesn't look like a monster. Yeah, he looks like somebody's, you know that's been through a, a really war, horrible yeah. thing, yeah. you know? So I think what's interesting about what he does with the, nobody ever runs away because the monster is marauding is disgusting. Yeah. You know, in the, in the, in the movie, the village, the villagers attack him because like, he's the one that he's, the he's cholera, sick. Yeah, he's the, the one bringing the play. Yeah. And he's the one that bringing the cholera, kill that motherfucker. Yeah. And it, you know, it's because he looks sick. Yeah. And then in the, uh, Later in the cabin, they just bust it and start hitting him because they think he's yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. he's the he's the tax collector and he's attacking the old yeah, the man. landlord or whatever. Yeah, you know. So it's I think it's interesting because you know in the book it's like everybody's repelled by him because he's so ugly. Yeah, he's he looks like a monster, and I guess it's hard to do that in the context of a, trying to make a realistic interpretation of it. 
I mean, Hattie Kiefer's pretty it, horrific in this. He does, but he looks—he doesn't look like a monster. He just looks horribly scarred. Yeah, he looks like a disfigured person. And yeah. you would think that some people would be like, man, that guy's been through an Well, ordeal. I like also that through the progression of the makeup is that it stuff's healing because he starts taking his stitches out. Well, I've out, always thought that if I, if I were to ever do an adaptation of it, Think of like the physical pain he must be oh, in of course. when he wakes up because he's yeah. got all these like stitches yeah, they're, they're and they're just swollen. like pl- you're putting the joints into the socket, but they're not like yeah. healed yet. Who knows if he has any like pain meds on board, you know? So it's like he's really, <laughs> you know, like the, just the and so like when he's when he's born, which I think is one of the great scenes of the movie, yeah. Uh, but like when he after he comes out, his all his stitches, the wounds are all really red, yeah, and then you do sore. you see you see that he's healing over time, which I think is a great yeah. stroke. Of For me, when when he leaves, when he gets kicked out of the cabin, that they cut abruptly to him crying. That's for me one of the most poignant parts of the movie. Yeah. For the for not for De Niro, but for the creature, you feel so sad for him that he's just at this point where of despair, where you know he, he doesn't have anybody. Not even like animals want to hang out with him. You know, um, it's it's. For me, it, it's it's a it's a hard line to find him redeeming, and Brenda does a good job keeping him. You know, oh, you know, you, you're kind of sympathetic because for me, when I read the book, it felt like almost like it's a class system point of view, yeah. where it's like, oh, I did this, I don't have to deal with it anymore. Be gone, you know. And then he leaves, and he just doesn't think about the implications of what he's done, and well, he leaves this thing the to the thing. world. You know? you know, it's and it's all these themes of you know parents, uh, you know, abandoning their kids or not, a, you know. Uh, acknowledging the children and you know all these other themes of well, I think that you know that's where so many of the movies got it wrong I mean it's there's there's sympathy for Karloff yeah. in the in the in the universal movie especially in the first one and, and in Bride of Frankenstein but I think the misnomer about this story and maybe now that we've had things like this movie and then there was like a two-part hallmark version uh, after this that tries to be really accurate to the book and then you have the portrayal of the monster or the creature in like petty dreadful that tv show from a couple years ago i think maybe now things have changed but for the longest time the idea is that it's this horror story with this horrific monster but really the monster is victor yeah and humanity yeah you know like they turn this this is the and this is the you know there there's a lot it's a morality tale and it's partial you know if we go back to stan lee and wherever the phrase originally came but like with great power comes great responsibility and then you know there's clearly that that science fiction this is the first work of science fiction there's that there's clearly that idea of you know that in science fiction that later comes with like terminator which is like you know when you play god and you and you know you have to the advancement of technology can ultimately lead to lead to something horrific if you don't keep it in check and we're not responsible with what we're doing that's what's happening here with technology in in terms of like a medical sense but really in the essence of the you know the heart of the story it's about creating and not taking responsibility for what you've done it's almost like fathering a child and then you're walking out you know it's that like you were so consumed with whether you could do it the sex you, with with whether you could do it, you never stop to think of whether you should do it. Yeah, and it's when in the book when like it comes to life, and he's like, "Oh fuck, what did I do?" Yeah, and it's like this thing is gross. <laughs> yeah, and he's re- suddenly repelled by it, and, and there's, or, it's, or there's a learning curve of and trying it's to like walk. this in the in the in the book. Yeah, at least here it's like he tries to get it up. Well, it's because you need again, you need to have the you know you're gonna repel 
the audience. Yeah. If if suddenly he, you know, I I think he, Brent says in this book I have that he they they had to insert that line. What have I done? So that he kind of even because if he's like ah oh, fuck off, people are like well fuck you. Yeah, you know yeah. look what you've done. You know so you kind of have him be like oh you know like I was in a fever dream and I was you know it, but, but it becomes so much of this plight of how how sad this and this care you know and then you know him he takes the trench coat and the trench coat which is one time Kenneth Branagh Victor's thing and it becomes almost like a, a second skin. Yeah. This leathery, leathery thing, and a part of them, and and then I, when in the movie you have the, they're in the glacier, they have the conversation where in the book it's him telling everything. I find that to be one of my favorite scenes in the movie too, because the creature's talking about the recorder he picks up, and he says, you know, yeah, yeah. I know how to play this. How do I, you know, those, and it's hard because De Niro gives delivers those they're lines. Not so much things learned, but remember, remember, yeah, you know, it's like that, and then you know, I find a lot of those poignant. You know, like what have you done? Well, you there's a great sentiment. I think the script is great. You know, you know, I, I, you know, I don't. It's arguable for me whether somebody else could have, like, like you had Gary Oldman play Jockey, you should have Gary Oldman play the monster. Yeah, I mean, at first they were they were gonna do draw. <laughs> like Gary Oldman would have been awesome. Oh, I know. Been, you know, but they, I think they wanted like I, I guess a I understand. Yeah, like you want a bigger name and you probably want. They were gonna American get Gerard Depardieu and then you know he fell through. They had a couple. They had a couple people. What ifs here? Big what ifs. But it's so it's hard to to juggle. I think he does a good job of not completely because I've never looked at in the old days when I watched the Karloff version. It never occurred to me that look at the Colin, what's his face, his character, the uh, Doctor Frankenstein. Uh, is that Colin Clive? I think yeah. So yeah, I never. I, he's a mad scientist and he's creating this character, and then you're like, oh, this poor thing. Or in this movie, it's like it's about the creator doing it and then the ramifications. Well, that's what I love about the, this one. You know. Aside from the stylistic choices of over the top, from a dramatic point of view, what I love about it is this idea of obsession. Yeah. He's obsessed with cheating death. Yeah. He's obsessed with what he's... when he's reanimating, when he's trying to reanimate the monster, the, the creature, he's on the thing, he's like, live! Yeah. Like, he wants Very, it yeah. so bad. And then when it happens, he, didn't he, think thinks it. It, he thinks he's killed it. And the sudden, you know, but then the thing falls down, hits in the head. I mean, I've always read it that way. That it's like he built, he caught it up, he put it in those chains, and then this accident happened, and he thinks he's now killed it. And so it's this question of like, is he like, what have I done? Have yeah, I? Yeah, but killed, then it wakes. Have him, I created it and killed it? But then it? he knows it wakes him up, though. Remember, it wakes him yeah, up, and well, he gets frightened, and it runs and grabs it. You know, but I the, think you know. Oh, that's why his initial abandonment of it is, but he thinks he. Killed yeah, I'm going to go to bed. I see. Because I'm exhausted. Freak, one, I'm freaked out. Like, look what I like. He's now questioning. He's now questioning about the responsibility of what he did for yeah. the first time. Now I that see. he's done it, he's like, "What the fuck did I do?" Shit. But also, like, and I just killed it. Like, thank God. Yeah. Like I created this monstrosity. It's like why? Because he didn't come out of the womb talking. <laughs> yeah. Hey, how are Give you? Give a couple minutes for Christ's sake. He can't get up on the slippery surface. Give him a couple minutes. Yeah, it's um, awkward. But this idea of obsession, because. That's all this movie's about is obsession. Yeah. You know, it's Aiden Quinn's obsessed with getting to the North Pole. Yeah. Kenneth Branagh's Victor Frankenstein is obsessed with creating the monster. Yeah. The monster is later obsessed with seeking revenge on, on Victor. Victor's then obsessed with the monster and tr- follows the monster to the North Pole. It's this is weird, cycl- you know, cyclical, you know, the cycle of, of obsession is what this movie's about. And, I, and that's the thing that dramatically that really works so great. So much so that, like, his <clears throat> love for Elizabeth is, beca- you know, like, his obsession for her leads to the scene that we were hinting at earlier. But the two, to me, the, the two great scenes of this movie are the reanimation, the birth of the, of the creature 
it's the, the set design is beautiful. This idea that it's liquid and it's messy. Yeah. It's bur- he's birthing it. Yeah. It's not just like electronic bolt. He's got a, he's got the embryonic fluid. And all this yeah. stuff. It's disgusting, but it's beautiful. It, and it's just like it's such a um, like amazing set piece and the scene's so great. And then later where he veers completely away from the book. And he out of obsession of losing yet maybe the last person that he's ever really going to love. He's lost his brother. He's lost that by that point. He's 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 lost his dad. He doesn't know he lost his dad yet, but, but his dad, yeah. still who cares about the dad? Well, his dad's like now, like in his own head. Yeah. His mother he's, died. He's lost his mother. He lost. And now he's, he's lost the woman. He's always loved. Um, and what is he going to do? I like, uh, for me on a, on a, on a, on a comedy note I, I thought it'd be because you know he's doing this stuff in the attic like meanwhile you cut the downstairs the old woman's like watching Jeffrey like will you turn it down <laughs> the lights there? are flickering yeah. <laughs> she's got like a broom she's like hitting the room shut the, I'm gonna call the police um, the birthing sequence to me was was very convoluted when I was little because I couldn't figure out what that sack of the scrotum with the eels in it yeah, yeah. so it was kind of like disgusting for me and it wasn't a highlight like I liked the metal sur- tomb sarcophagus that they got from the shadow which they didn't but it looks like the thing that the guy comes in in the shadow yeah. you know and for me the highlight was more of the you know when, when the creature comes out and his interaction with the people in the world and you find out why he becomes so messed up and how sad it is with that and then once they get to geneva uh, they shot a week in the uh the swiss alps here like the fir- once the brother's lost or maybe the brother dies you know all of a sudden he's there and he's, you know, I love that. I used to love that first reveal with the, the lightning. You'll meet me there on the <laughs> <Yeah>, sea of ice. <laughs> you know. Can we just go meet yeah, over there? Just, just meet in the shed. <laughs> come on. We'll move can the, we just walk over to we'll the move forest? The out. Why do we have to go over there to go see there? Like, see, come on, it's so far. <laughs> I don't have just... Plus, it's, it's a big place. It's, it's you. I'm going to lose you. How are <laughs> Where on the sea of ice? Can't uh, we just do it here? I like the uh, the very little subtext or subplot which never develops of that like he was almost supposed to be destined to marry the the girl the piano player you know like the servant girl victor yeah victor and the mother that's there like the teacher she's yeah, like the, yeah. you know and and she's almost you could it's great because maybe because it's the theater background kenneth brown gives them some business but you see the entire time they're wrestling with like why isn't my daughter good enough yeah, you know yeah. what I mean, and then the idea of her like she should be or shut the fu- he's you know. And then when the daughter goes missing, please can you help me find my daughter now? And then it's so sad that you get it happens very quickly. Yeah. But the mom wasn't for that drastic orphan Elizabeth showing up. Yeah, and then her dastardly kid, she's ruined everything. Because even with the locket, it's like well she could have just wake up and say I found this in the woods, but then she wakes up and they're like we found her. That means she's guilty. We're gonna fucking hang her in five minutes. You better get here. Yeah, well you know? that's in the book because it's yeah. also like why is she just sleeping in the barn? Well she yeah. like I know she gets dark and there's the or whatever she's so tired she's, she's so obsessed <laughs> she's like i can't she's she's just, you think if she was stressed out you know, she would be like yeah she's like oh i need this but in the know. book he pins it on yeah which is which is good and then so uh it, it brings a lot of interesting points in you know and you could see what he's going for the 90s flair i mean at the 90s remember the cloning is on the forefront we're doing uh you know uh uh Organ transplants, the, you know, yeah. skin grafting. So this is all. Well, very I love those little touches you know? where he's like, you know, like twenty years ago, we never would have thought we would have been able to, you know, vaccinations. But now it's common practice. He's like, someday we're going to be able to. If you need a new heart, we're going to be able to. And take, I like put the a new idea when, when when the the De Niro kills John Cleese. 
that he gets hung for that that it's just, he's just trying to vaccinate them. That never occurred to me. I don't know, fifteen years ago. Yeah, I watched yeah. it. You know, and I like that. You know, the thought of yeah, you gotta put the pox. Yeah, in it's great because you know the guy. He, yeah, he sounds nuts, the, but he's got a you know. Yeah, it's, that's I, what it's exactly what he's doing. Yeah, you're not. You're not. I don't want that shit in me. And I like he had like the world is so well thought out when they're in that Ingolstadt. You know, with the walls because it's a great. Uh, you know you can compare it to the beautiful hiring class system of these people living in this beautiful, you know, like uh, they said the blue uh, ballroom is supposed to be like heaven because it's blues. So they have the dancing. It's light colors, like it's clouds. But then when you go to the reality of these German cities, it's like terrible, muddy, diseased, and, you know, things are rotting and there's corpses lying around. And, um, you know, this is a couple hundred years later after the Black Plague, but there's disease and filth, so the inoculation, so it's the birth of cleanliness and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I well, love, you know, It adds, it grounds it yeah. in reality. You know, and I like the idea, the conscious ideas of how they, why they do, like I liked, because when I made my Frankenstein monster, the De Niro model, like I, I took flesh colors, I made them different colors so that one leg yeah. would look like something else. So I like that, he, oh, he, has a, he had an eye patch, so they have to give him an eye. Or, you know, uh, he had a peg leg, so they give him a new leg. And why he just didn't use John Cleese to begin with? I, th- I, I would have thought because he'd been in the ground too long, but then it doesn't, that doesn't concern him when they bring the maid. So in the book, but, uh, we went off on a tangent, but, but in the book, the, the creature comes to him and says, I want a bride, and he brings the maid. He's t- and so Victor's like, okay, and he starts doing it, and he gets to the point where he's about to undertake it, and the creature's watching like from a window, and then Victor destroys it, says, I'm not going to do it, and that gets the revenge where the creature says, well, yeah, I'll be yeah. there with you on your wedding night. There's, in the book, yeah, he's like... He's about to he's do about it. He's about to do it, and then That he, was the, the big left turn we took before where I was cutting you off when we were talking yeah. about was I was getting to that, was that almost happens in the book, but it Victor comes happens, to his senses. It almost happens, but he like savagely dismantles the body. Of the maid, and then so the creature's like, I'll be with you on your wedding night, and but, I used to love the idea in this movie like that was another line where he, where he you see her on top of the bed and he comes down don't bother to scream yeah, oh yeah. i used to trailer. love yeah that was, that's fucking great you know and then the idea now darabont but i think it's important to you know in the how it differs in the book is when i like he when he dismantles the body he's like i'm not going to do this and it's almost like rape you know like he just tears this body apart yeah and, and so, it's, it's horrific too in front of like this is a the you know the creatures resided himself like that's my new woman. Yeah, and and like, I got that's what causes stepping the, out with my baby. <laughs> and that's what causes the creature to go and this Ray and go kill yeah. Elizabeth on the way. Yeah, night. but it's like he, he just infuriated. Yeah, so and understandably. Yeah, and then so Darabont talks about he didn't write this scene that Brenna injected, and this is I think one of the reasons why Darabont doesn't like the script. Yeah, He's yeah. like, I, you know, but but it's like what you're saying. I think this works really well. It's really fucked it. up. And then it's, it's probably like the most interesting thing about the movie. Maybe not for you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, you know, I could, I, I get all your points about like the, the uh, sentimentality, the emotion of the creature and all that stuff. And all that's, you know, in the book and it's, and it does as good of a job as it can to, to kind of get that across. But in terms of just like sheer, like cinematic and like weirdness. So also, you know, it's like <laughs> fucked up. You get to that point where you're like, oh my God. It's like he, he, it, it's messed up how quickly she died. He like, De Niro rips her heart out. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, Ugh! and he run. I mean, it's still beaten. And then so, then she falls and lights her head on, which is even more fucked up. So he runs back. He, takes and he started and then the people are helping him too is the, the servants are like are you sure okay and then when it's and then De Niro suddenly and then all of a sudden you have that idea of like you know like uh like a puppy 
Like, who do you come to? You know? Yeah, yeah. And it's really fucked up. And then she, you but think he goes, she's starting he, to remember. He, he doesn't dismantle the maid's body. What he does is he takes Elizabeth's head off. Which is the probably you think what because he can't. He's she working off time. Whole, like, yeah, I guess like you know. It's but I would have thought in his mind it was easier to I guess put her head on her body. But see, I don't know the time. I guess give her her hands too instead of. I mean, yeah. time does not a factor because, quite frankly, like John Cleese's body, John Cleese's b- brain, been, yeah, has been sitting inside like, of one. Where are you going to get? Where are you going to get ice? Yeah. Two. It's a little late to put the brain on ice. Yeah, yeah. It's been on the ground for three days. Yeah, and also, the, and that's the thing with the maid. The maid's been in the body, you know, so he doesn't matter about rigor or any kind of. Yeah, yeah. So you, know. you have to limit. You have to suspend disbelief. Yeah. So he, what he does is, since Elizabeth doesn't have a heart anymore, he just cuts her head off, and I guess her hand, maybe because she plays the piano, or he wants to touch her. I hands. guess because she, well, I don't know why you know? she would have the. And the other girl, you don't see her body. put the hands on, <laughs> yeah. but she's got. Yeah, I think he wants she's her got hands. Stitches. You know, because that's a personal thing. Hands. Yeah. You don't want someone else's hands. We learned that in Mad Love. But I love <laughs> it because it's. Uh, it's almost like the not the bastard, but it's the idea, like the not not the adulterization, but the, just the the just it's such a taboo. Well, yeah, well, there, there's that, but it's like it's one of those things that I think goes toward like humanizing or creating empathy and sympathy for Victor. Yeah, it's like it's the, it is that question, you know? It's like uh, Pet Cemetery, you know? Yeah. Like if you knew the dead should be a bit off dead. <laughs> If you know of a way, how could you not be tempted to take it? Yeah. No matter the consequences. And also... When, you're upset, when, when you love somebody that much. Like, you, you're like, I can bring her back to life. How can I not bring yeah. her back to life? You know, and hopefully, like, we've seen... He knows that the monster is developing memories. Maybe if I do it fast enough... She'll still remember everything. That she'll still be, you know, yeah. she'll and, still and be in there somewhere. You get an inkling of that. You get an inkling of that. And then she's at the end. She's like, wow, well, how could you? <laughs> <laughs> she's like, what the fuck? But I just thought, you know, it's such a weird all, turn to take of that movie. Well, when De Niro, but, but totally understandable. When De Niro time. comes back, you know, when he makes his, his uh, appearance in Geneva after the kid is killed, there, there starts this great, I think, snowball effect, which I think works where this tension gets built. And this is other kind of horror in the movie. You know, where it's uh, suddenly the, the, since the, the little brother's killed and then the woman's taken and the mob fucking savagely lynches her. Yeah, yeah. That's horrific. So you get this, oh, my God. And then uh, and then what's her then what's his face is nuts already by this point. I mean, Holmes, the father. And then the bride dies on the wedding night. It's just like this stuff won't stop. And then his yeah. idea is like, ah, he's the madness. I'm going to go. But I also turn her back on. I also love what he's going to create the bride out of the. He doesn't know what's going to be the maid yet. Yeah. But when he agrees, because he's like, I need to write what I've done wrong. Yeah. Like, he, there's this moment of like, yeah, like, I wasn't there for you. I created you. You're right. I, you how, how can I fix this? Yeah. And he says, I just want someone. I want one. I don't need love from everyone, but I need somebody. And he, oh, so he, he says, how am I going to write this wrong? And he decides, he says, yes. And I, I also just love the scene where he has to go to Elizabeth and say, like, it's just going to be a month. You yeah, know, see, like, it's all more of his because, selfishness. Like he, but he also, like, he can't tell her. Yeah. And so she, he's like, I promise. And she's like, well, your promise doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It's just like it's a great, like, relationship. You know, like, it's just a great piece of drama. Yeah, but it shows more of his, his obsession where he's not thinking of the other people around him and all that kind of a thing. Um. We talked about the makeup. I mean, De Niro in it, he, they said that he'd sometimes have to be picked up at 2.30 or 3 in the morning and he'd be 
for four to ten hours just in the makeup chair to get all this shit on, which is crazy. And then he, on top of that, he had to go to set and work for like six, seven, eight hours, which is uh, crazy on itself. And then, you know, with his body, he had to make sure that once they took casts of his body that he didn't lose or gain any weight because then the shit wouldn't fit right. For four months, he had to be like that, yeah. you know. And it's weird because I don't think Brown is shooting it like a horror film. He's shooting it like a – he's presenting the story as is and then the horrificness, like you're saying, of – the story and the complaint is just is just coming through and, and then you're getting that as a byproduct of and maybe it just maybe because it doesn't know what it wants to be if it wants to be a uh, you know horror movie if it wants to be a uh, like a gothic thriller gothic romantic thing you know I mean also in the book Victor the reason why he doesn't want to create the bride because he's suddenly worried that that uh the bride and Frankenstein could go off and have kids and he doesn't want then this guy having like kin and maybe making an army of Frankensteins that then would take over the world. He's a That's one of the reasons why he destroys the, uh, you know, the body and all that kind of a thing, you know? So, uh, I, you know, I love you and I obviously have an affinity for this movie and, uh, I has all the elements I love. I love all that laboratory stuff at the beginning in the university in those amphitheaters. I love the yeah. idea of body snatchers and then, you know, uh, the plagues and all this stuff. And then someone having to deal with what they've done the idea of abandoning, you know, the, and then also in Mary Shelley's real life, Percy ends up drowning a couple years later. Yeah. Uh, and then they, they, they set him a fire on a pyre. You know, so then she's messed up with that for the rest of her life, and she dies, I think, kind of young, I guess. And his heart doesn't burn. Really? Which, yeah, and they give, and the, her fr- the friends take and give her the heart, because the heart, for some reason, the heart doesn't burn. Well, we learned from, uh, from, from hell, Ian Holmes, it's the hardest, the thickest meat to cook or whatever. <laughs> but it's also, they think that, you know, in hindsight, medically, that he might have just, like, it just might have been so calcified. Oh really? From With like all the, from the diet and, of all and, the and lifestyle that maybe it just didn't burn because it was just you know it was, he was ready to go anyway. <laughs> and it ends up being the same way where it's um, in the movie as in the book where they come back and you have now then uh, Victor then pursue, so mad about what happened then pursues Frank and, uh, the creature. I'm um, excuse me up until the into the glaciers and that's how you meet yeah. this guy uh, Aiden Quinn and then that's where you realize Aiden Quinn realizes in this story because then all of a sudden he's dead and I think it's kind of abrupt in the book too where after he's done telling the tale Victor he just dies in in the captain's yeah. cabin and then Aiden Quinn realizes the the captain of this vessel that okay I'm on the same obsessive quest that could lead in death and disaster like this guy yeah. let's turn around and go back there's a the little more in the book because like in the book the monster the creature. He's luring him to the north, to the north, and he's leaving food oh. for Victor to eat. Well, there's a and kinship, the, and this, but there's this, there's that, there's this mutual obsession, but there's also this thought of, but the monster is pulling him away from society to make him feel like what he isolated the way you know the monster or the the creature yeah did th- feels to, to the same way. So we kind of lose a little bit of that aspect, but we do get like. Like you said, the bookend of the thing, and then the scene with De Niro is is good, is great. Where he, when you say when he when he dies, when he walks in and he cry, and you know we see him, and he's like, all, and know, all the guys, are what's your at name? Him. And he's like, he never gave me one. That's which yeah, I think is very sad. And it's and you realize that there's this this real level of uh, you know connection between the two because he's like, this is my dad. I'm not sure he ever know? calls him father in the book, to my recollection. But it's a great moment for this. It's like, well, then why are you crying? Is it like, because he's my father? Yeah. There's this funny thing that I found on Facebook a long time ago, and I've saved it onto my phone. I'm not going to pull it out right now. But the gist of it is it's the last page of the book, and it's like 
and the you know and the creature gets on the thing and it's drifting oh and it looks in the mire of the waves or yeah and, and then somebody wrote a hand you know in it's just it's a picture of the page from the book from the book and somebody wrote i just think it's so funny because then <laughs> it was so funny that i that i i kept i downloaded it onto my phone and i kept that it and it's like somebody wrote after like amended the ending to say and as he drifted away i could just barely make out his final words it's like as the creature drifted away i could just barely make out his final words and then it's a quote uh you can just call me frankenstein not frankenstein's monster i don't mind the end (laughs) i just just think that's funny because he's because he's frankenstein you know, and it's like, no, it's not Frankenstein. Frankenstein's the guy who created him. It's my dad. It's Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, guys. <laughs> so like, a, a, a common misconception. And he's like, well, it. if he's the son of Frankenstein, he's Frankenstein too, jerk. Uh, and then to bring up connection to the other week, uh, uh, the composer, Patrick Doyle, who did Needful Things in Carlito's Way. We seem like Carlito's Way keeps coming up with Yeah. That, he also, you know? he's done like all of Brana's movies, yeah. except for maybe Thor. Um, but uh, he's, he did all the Shakespeare stuff that Brana's done. Yeah, I, and I, I like the score. Yeah, I like the it's, score. I, I mean, like I the, like that it's so well, I love, big and lush and kind of overdramatic. I had revisited uh, Carlito's Way some like, six months ago, and I always love that score. And I think that helps succeed so much. Yeah. And, you know, so then when this guy does this, I think it really aids this score here too. And um, anyway, I think it, it. See, it's it's interesting because in in some ways it is kind of the most uh, uh, faithful in certain aspects of keeping stuff that was never because I, this may be one of the only books that you've seen where uh, the book comes out, it's done one way, and then after that, uh, it's because of a movie or a play, it's done such a different way, and then because of that, people now only know it for that version. So you only go off the Karloff uh, yeah. Universal Movies v- version, you don't really know that this had like, you know, two different narr- or three different narrations and it had these bookends of various things. And and I think, you know, something that we didn't get to that I would have loved to talk about, but now I can hear Dion's mom pouring some cereal upstairs for us. Yeah. Uh, but it's a conversation that I think we have in Monster Squad or certainly the, maybe in The Mummy, but definitely in Monster Squad, this idea of how those characters, Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, how they've you know, surpassed his, you know, oh, they've become, yeah, they've become themselves in pop culture. Idiot. Yeah. Yeah. And how, you know, and especially the universal monsters and how, like for most people, when you say Frankenstein, their first, the thing that they're going to see in their mind is Karloff. Like Karloff yeah. That look, the and monsters. how they've become these timeless, iconic things. Yeah. Completely you know, different from what they really were. Now, 200 years later, like I was saying, we've hinted at it with the Frankenbite talk, but this idea of, they're now t- they're timeless part of that lexicon they'll now. always be yeah. part of like human history and, and this is also birthed i mean you know uh this predates dracula predates vampire you know so it, it births this whole other subgenre of you know yeah and it's a very early in, uh example of before it was called horror the gothic yeah the, tales which is what a whole then, other conversation but then later edgar Allan poe yeah. becomes like a master of with only 12 stories yeah this this gothic kind of a fiction you know either, either like romantic or kind of thrillers and stuff so it's very interesting and yeah we thought this would be the best one to kind of like take it because we have the affinity for for us of kids and then it be having this unique style you know and i'm sure we can go on talking for another hour oh yeah this, there's a lot of stuff know? we didn't get to yeah but, but it's it's we're, we're on we got four this month yeah so we're, we we're running through these concise um 
And there's probably other things that we didn't get to that we had written down here. There's a whole bunch of notes. You know, we had the incest theme. We've talked about that before. We have, we love our incest themes. <laughs> Gotta love incest. Yeah. And all these other things. That's a joke, people. Yeah, that's, that's not true. It's not really, it's not real. Um, so uh, we hope you like what you've been hearing this this uh, year so far. We had our anniversary two weeks ago. We had, thank you again for Mike Vanderbilt coming on last, uh, the other week to do. Um, we had a classic coming up next week yeah we have a classic coming out next week is right uh also you can find us on twitter facebook we're on instagram uh saturday at, night movie sleepovers at sat sleepovers uh you have we have our own homepage saturday night movie sleepovers you can go there for like show extras and we're stuff now, like that we're now part of the clnsmedia.com network yep clns media network there are uh there uh we're partnership with them doing some good stuff you could check us out on that website CL, clns media and of course you can find us on itunes stitcher and most places you find podcasts yeah uh blake you have stuff scored to death at scored to death on social media scored to death.com is my website of course that's all for the book scored to death conversations with some of horror's greatest composers and the podcast scored to death the podcast Awesome. I've got a book coming out called Blood in the Streets. That's out December the 4th. It's available now for Amazon pre-order. Uh, it's going to be available on paperback, ebook, as well as audiobook. So you can go over to Amazon and pre-order that if you want to go check it out. It's available. We have a Facebook page. We have a Instagram page. And we have a Twitter play page. So please go uh, follow those uh, Blood in the Streets novel. Um, the, there's the hashtag there if you want to go look and uh, follow that and retweet and follow along for the big release December the 4th uh, yeah and we're going to be back next week with another classic so uh, same sleepover time and same, same sleepover, sleepover channel <laughs> until then later later